Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. This is a podcast. <laughs> well done, well Thank done. You. This is a podcast where uh, we do lists here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. I write for various places, sometimes The Rap, sometimes Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, write for Slash Film. Right over there, full time. We got a lot of articles over there. Boy, howdy, do you? Uh, and uh, let's not dilly dally. Let's get into these things because these are big ones. These are epic podcasts, and a lot of people listen to them. A lot of people like them. Glad you do. Uh, and they're very special to us because they are chosen by our patrons over patreon.com/slash critically acclaimed network. Amongst the very many things you get when you're a patron over at patreon.com/slash critically acclaimed network, in addition to various podcasts, exclusive podcasts every single week. In addition to Hangouts on Discord and the like, we also uh, give you a chance to vote for the topic for every month's Iron List. We present to you a series of topics. Our patrons get to vote for them, and then Whitney and I put together our own picks. We do not discuss them beforehand. uh, For the very best films or what have you in that category. And then uh, we talk about it at at some length. These are usually very long podcasts, which is kind of our, our shtick, really. We don't do mm. short ones in general, but these are epic deep dives into cinema. And I love this series that we're doing, and this is the latest installment. Our patrons asked us to do the greatest films that have ever begun with the letter H. We're up to the letter H. We've been going through the, the whole alphabet, and yep. we're going to do 26 of these eventually. Eventually but... we're going to get through all of them. It's going to be real weird when we get to the weird stuff like the Qs and the Xs. There aren't too many films that begin with the letter X, but there's more than you might think. We'll, we'll make it work. and they, uh, I don't think they're all going to be X-Men movies either. So, <laughs> But regardless, uh, I'm looking forward to getting to that, and this has been a really fun uh, uh, journey because it gives us an opportunity to talk about films that don't necessarily go together. Yes. You know, a lot of times you talk about certain movies and they're just of a piece with other films. Like if we did uh, one of these about the best slasher movies, well, there's a decent chance we'd be talking about films like Halloween and Friday the 13th, movies that get discussed together quite often. However, if the only thing they have in common is that they just happen to begin with the same letter of the alphabet, we can talk about all kinds of different kinds of movies at the same time, in the same podcast, to give you all kinds of weird recommendations that you might not have been expecting, uh, and I love that. I think this is a really fun idea. I'm really glad our patrons are enjoying it, and I hope you enjoy it too. Um, the way our list system works is a little different from most other list shows. Most other list shows, when they do a top ten, they rank them. The number ten is perhaps less good than the number nine, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't care about any of that. Uh, if, as far as we're concerned, <laughs> if it's in our top ten, we want you to see it. They're great. So we're not going to split hairs as to what yeah. you know, the seventh is better than the, uh, better yeah. than the eighth. You know, if, whatever. If, if that's the article we're writing for a website or something, that's fine. But when, we're, when we get to choose to do it, we don't care. So they're all equally recommended, with the one exception of our number one pick. Our number one pick 
as which our is, number one pick, which isn't necessarily the same uh, between us. Occasionally, we've been we've been on the same page, but usually we're not. Uh, if we had to pick the greatest movie that just happened to begin with the letter H, this is the movie we would pick. Mm. That's it. Other than that, again, we don't discuss it ahead of time. Uh, usually, we we do a little pitter patter about uh, what our criteria was, but in this case. It's just got to begin with the letter H, baby. If there's an article in front of it, like an A or a the, mm. still counts, still the letter H. Yeah, uh, in, this actually isn't a, an issue with any of the films on my list, but if you had any that were L apostrophe H, mm. like L'Homme, oh, like yeah. the, the uh, French articles, the, yeah. that still counts as H it in still my counts. book. Yeah. yeah, I'm solely with you on that. Um, so, on that note, mm. uh, we usually start with Whitney, uh-huh. and you might think that that means I always uh, uh, end up... With the last pick, not the case. Anytime there's a tie, it totally screws with it. So, Whitney, I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna let you take us away. What is the first film you want to recommend? Uh, what do I want to talk about? I I, I wanted to um, just step out of the out of the mm. mainstream a little bit. Like yeah, some some you zone. might know that are really kind of well known, but there's a, there's some a few on my list that are pretty well known, and they think they deserve. Yeah. They deserve their placement on a list like this, um, but, you know, we'll mix and, it up. And this is one that came out uh, in, in the mid-2000s. Okay. It was one I was very fond of. It got a little bit of acclaim at the time, and I think it's really, really fascinating because it talks about something I'm really interested in, and that is graphic design. Mm. Uh, graphic design is sort of the the aesthetic dictate of what the world looks like. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of what we internalize about aesthetics, uh, it comes from the world of graphic design mm. and whether or not that counts as art is something that can be defined, yeah. but it's, it's, cause it's industrial art. It's yeah. usually art that's like done because FedEx needs a logo. So we're going to mm. compose a logo for FedEx and that a logo is now everywhere. You see it on buses on yeah, billboards and, and, and commercials and it's just, it's part of the more, tapestry of our lives. And it becomes a, a symbol of a corporation rather mm. than like a work of art that's evocative of anything. But it uh, evokes and, that corporation though. It's still doing the job well, of art. Th- here's the thing. It's, it's trying to do the job of art and that is convey a mood and, yeah. and but it's, the mood is now something that's like a corporate dictate. It's trying to get you to think of a company rather than have a feeling necessarily. Exactly. Sometimes um, there's, a, there's a weird relationship between yeah. art and commerce that can and, sometimes uh, veer on the side of commerce. I think a lot of that is covered in a documentary film from 2007 called Helvetica. Now, I've never actually uh, seen this. Helvetica is about the font. <laughs> the font Helvetica that you know. You've probably used it on your computer. I think it's, it's often the default in a lot of programs well, that I use. that's the thing. Why is it the default? Why mm-hmm. do we think of, like, actual typeface yeah. in Helvetica? How did that become the standard? And they talk to a lot of graphic designers and a lot of people who are, like, typeface uh, historians. Yeah. People who, like, go really deep into the, the, the details of this very specific thing and talk about how Helvetica is it, it they they keep on saying it's like the perfect font yeah like you couldn't think of anything more efficient than helvetica yeah. it's clear it's concise mm. it doesn't it's not distracting you with its tone like some particular fonts evoke something maybe grand it looks like you know medieval lettering mm-hmm. others are very blocky and they come across as somewhat in your face yeah helvetica is very and again we're speaking only as it pertains to the english language but like it's very clean well it's uh, yeah. it's legible and That's i think what I mean. um, very clean, yeah. helvetica first started coming into favor 
uh, in, sort of in the 1960s with a lot of uh, minimalist and modernist art movements were coming to the fore. A lot of uh, graphic design was getting a lot simpler. If you look at um, the corporate logos designed by Saul Bass, mm-hmm. he did way more than you think, by the way. He did oh, the yeah. U.S. Postal Service. He did the Girl Scouts. He did Der Wiener Schnitzel. Yeah, he a did lot the, of... the United Way, uh, AT&T, uh, United Airlines. And and Saul uh, Bass didn't just do that. If you're unfamiliar with the name, Saul Bass is best known to many people uh, for his work designing credit sequences mm. in classic movies. Yeah, he, he did the Psycho credit sequence. Yep. He did the Vertigo uh, credit sequence. He mm-hmm. did uh, Anatomy of Murder. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these very... Con- and he did uh, The Shining. Uh, yeah. So if you if you just want to like go to YouTube and like look up a Saul Bass credit sequence, you'll mm. see something really, really stunning. It's storytelling within often somewhat abstract iconography, but he's evoking mood, yeah. he's evoking tone. He also directed a very messed up movie about super smart killer ants called Phase 4. It's the only film he ever directed. Which is very <laughs> weird and abstract, and I can't tell if it's a movie you should never mm. watch high or only watch high. <laughs> it depends on how intense an experience you mm. want while you're smoking out. Uh, but it is, a, it is a neat film, mm. and it is definitely, I think, a, I think it's a hoop. That film, uh, film lovers should jump through at some point in their career. Yeah, def- definitely watch Phase yeah. Four. Um, uh, but yeah, Helvetica is a really interesting, just totally fascinating uh, deep dive into the way the way we've shaped the world around us and the aesthetics of things. Yeah, and it does. So draw uses Helvetica a line. as an entryway. It's yeah, not exclusively it, about Helvetica. Okay, uh, I mean that's where it kind of centers on. But yeah, it sort of looks back. Um, they have a guy who collected old street signs in the movie, and he pointed out how a lot of street signs had this. By today's eye, mm. a kind of a haunted house font to it. Everything was very angular and had a lot of serif on it. Uh, it was very sort of pointy and aggressive. Yeah. Uh, and Helvetica was invented as sort of a curative to that kind of aesthetic. Mm. And in a way, we've taken away a lot of life and flavor out of these things. A lot of personality, yeah. But again, if you're just doing typeface, if you just want clarity, that's the point, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it just gets you to think a, a lot about the world around you in a way that you probably weren't before. I really And you start that. noticing all that kind of stuff after you see a film like Helvetica. I think it's really, really fascinating. I, I, I've always been interested in typeface even before I really thought about it very complicatedly. I would mm. like... When you get a word processing program regardless of whether it's you know you're writing on google or whatever or you're writing mm. on word or, or pages is what uh, apple products have i've had a variety of different writing uh, uh programs throughout the years and they always come with a set of typefaces mm. um it used to be you just get a handful um, one that looked kind of like cursive, a couple of like, you know, you get Georgia and Helvetica uh-huh. and uh, Papyrus what was, if you're feeling fancy. What was uh, what was your go-to? Did you just do Times New Roman? Uh, Times, uh, New Roman was, Times New Roman was often my go-to because it was the default. What I often would do is I would change it to Courier, which okay. is the closest it, it equivalent usually to uh, Typewriter. Oh, okay. Uh, that's... Typewriter. I think there's even like a courier typewriter. Even just adds. I just. uh, I I always like that aesthetic because I. I was the last. I was part of the last class in my school district to learn how to type on a typewriter. Yes. The Uh, the year after anymore, but yeah. Year after I learned. In fact, the semester after I learned, they got rid of all the typewriters and replaced them with computers. And you might think, oh, that's archaic. Because let me tell you something. If you learn how to type on a typewriter, you learn how to type accurately. Because <laughs> there, there are no backspaces. There's okay. no backspaces. And there's there's a lot more pressure involved. You just you, Your entire typing style, I find, is very different. Yeah. But 
studying that, studying typing. I got very, very good at typing. That's one something people always ask me, like, what's what's uh, some advice you could give to someone who was, wants to go into writing? I say, learn how to type. Mm-hmm. Like, if you can type over 50 words a minute, you're doing good. Uh, I've Last time I clocked myself, I was at 110. Nice. Like it's it it's a huge time saver. Yeah, it's a real real pay. It's a, anyway, but um, anyway, yeah. I always thought it was really really fascinating. I always think it's interesting uh, the study. Like, there's more to typefaces than we realize. A lot of people make fun of Comic Sans, for example, mm-hmm. uh, because it looks kind of scrawly like a comic book, and um, and it seems kind of immature to some people. But it's actually designed so that the various letters that could be mirror images of each other are not. So that people who might have uh, uh, difficulty discerning between letters, for example, if you're uh, you're uh, dyslexic, if you're dyslexic, for example, uh, it is a font that reads more easily to you. Mm -hmm. There's a specific function behind that. It's not just we thought it would be fun to do a a typeface like this. A lot of thought goes into these Mm -hmm. things, and we take it for granted. And I think it's really uh, cool. I saw a wonderful T-shirt. It was a full print of like the galaxy. It was like a big star field with you know big galaxies on it, and it said in Comic Sans. Cosmic Sans. Ah, that's cute. Oh, that was, that's a t-shirt I'm very fond of. I think my favorite modern Saturday Night Live sketch is entirely about typefaces. It's called Papyrus. Well, it was a, a spoof of um, Avatar. It was, but it was also a, a, about typefaces. Avatar, like the most expensive and most successful movies of all time. Uh-huh. That first movie relied on papyrus, the, yeah. a, a font that came with your laptop. Yeah. And, and honestly, not a particularly good font. Like I, mm. don't, I find it uh, uh, very well, cloying. It, it's but, cloying, and it was overused. It was used yeah. in like um, any time somebody wanted to advertise like a, a an exhibit about ancient Egypt, uh-huh. they would always rely on papyrus. That yeah. was like the aesthetic they were going for. It's overused. We we recognize it very easily, and it's the sort of thing we just sort of associate with cheapness, and so. Uh, they did, when Ryan Gosling was hosting SNL, they did a sketch that was about him looking at Avatar, and specifically James Cameron, spending all of that money, and then just picking papyrus <laughs> as some kind of conspiracy thing. And it's like this great bit where just Ryan Gosling outside James Cameron's house, and it's like, I know what you did! <laughs> Always makes me laugh. Um, so this sounds really cool, I need to check this documentary out. I, I don't have any documentaries on my list. All right. Um, although I know there's a lot of good documentaries uh, that start with the letter H. I haven't actually seen them. And that's okay. I'm going to well, forgive uh, myself. Have you seen Hearts and Minds? I have. You know what? I have seen Hearts and Minds. It didn't make my list. Okay. I, I stand corrected. There is at least one I have seen. But it didn't make my list. Uh, but um, you're talking about uh, sort of an art form that is maybe a little underappreciated. And mm-hmm. that's, a, that's the segue I'm going to choose to go with uh, for my first pick. A movie that is from a filmmaker who would go on to much bigger things, much more expensive things, much more uh, trend-setting things. Uh, But early in his career, he was taking weirder and more interesting stabs. And he made a movie starring Robert De Niro that was about sort of the line between outsider art and criminality. Called Hi Mom! Oh, I haven't seen Hi Mom. Yeah! Hi Mom was actually a sequel yeah. to a movie I haven't seen called Greetings. Uh, early in his career, before Brian De Palma started doing his Hitchcock riffs, which would end up taking up most of his career, he'd do a few things besides Phantom of the Paradise is not Hitchcock. Uh, <laughs> Untouchables isn't particularly Hitchcock. 
But the majority of his career would be spent doing Hitchcockian type thrillers mm. like Obsession or Blowout or uh, Raising Cane or yeah. Body Double. And honestly, most of them are really, really great, and I would recommend them to anybody. Hi Mom stars Robert De Niro as a young man. This is like 1970. Robert De Niro was no one yet. Mm-hmm. He's a young man living in New York City. And he is, he's impoverished, but he's got a lot of dreams. He's got a lot of big ideas. And his dream and what he wants to do is he's got a little camera. He's got an apartment in uh, a really shitty building. But he's got a view, a very clear view of a big, big, big apartment building across the way. Mm-hmm. He has set up his camera to look at four different windows simultaneously. And he is trying to capture in a very lewd, peeping Tom fashion... Sexual moments, sexual catch catch people in flagrante. Yeah, yeah uh, if you're wondering why I sounded like kind of weird for a second there, uh, it's because I had to sneeze and I sneezed really <laughs> bad and I cut it out we for cut, your pleasure. We cut the podcast for a sneeze. Yeah, for, you're, you're welcome. It's, I saved your earbuds. If if you think we edit, we don't. No, that's it's, that's the most of what we do. Is I might yeah. edit out a sneeze. That's the majority. Mm. But anyway, so he wants to be a peeping tom, but he wants to film it and he wants to sell it. To people who distribute pornography. Okay. And when it turns out that his experiment isn't going too great, he realizes he needs to step in and help make this happen. So he engineers it so that he can meet one of the young women who lives across the way and start a relationship with them in the hopes of having sex in front of their window, which goes wrong in spectacular fashion in a way that's weirdly comical. And when that falls apart, he ends up joining uh, a very uh, avant-garde theater group, mm-hmm. uh, which is comprised mostly of uh, people of color, but also Garrett Graham. Okay. Great character actor, Garrett Graham. Also a fan of The Paradise. A lot. Of, he's in uh, quite a few uh, uh, of those classic films. Uh, and their whole raison d'etre is to put on an interactive theatrical experience in which bourgeois white people get to experience what it's like being black in a way that starts out as weirdly comical and turns into this very strange, very daring, very violent cinema verite experiment. Mm-hmm. Which really, on its own, you lift it out of the movie, it's fucking fascinating. Yeah. Um, and you can see, like... Brian De Palma using Garrett Graham's character as kind of an insert uh-huh. of like, here's this white director just sort of adding himself into the mix. Is that genuine? I, you know, is that, yeah. does that taint the experience? Is that really necessary? Yeah. The movie ends in a, in a, in a way that's actually a bit shocking and ends in like a big old joke, but it's really interesting to see this as, one, kind of a forebear to the types of movies that De Niro would make a little later in his career, not much later in his career, like Taxi Driver or King of Comedy. Uh, people who are sort of hidden amongst the urban sprawl hmm. and have weird obsessions or have uh, uh, proclivities that are going unchecked because nobody's looking for them. Um, and Hi Mom is, is much more... Uh, it's, it's a little bit more whimsical about it, even though it deals with some really intense shit. Mm. Uh, but I also like that it's it's Brian De Palma talking about artists trying to get themselves noticed by any means possible uh, in a very politically charged and a very uh, uh, 
and a marketplace that is pushed by very extreme types of art. Mm-hmm. Anyway, if you've never seen it, it's 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 a little heavy sometimes, but and it's not for everybody. But it is excellent, and I do think it's really really interesting. It is nowhere near as polished as the Palmas later works, but you can see a lot of that innovation, and you can see a lot of his eagerness to push the the envelope for a reason, not just to do it. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting, it's it's experimental, and it goes largely overlooked. So check it out if you haven't, uh, okay. haven't seen it. But again, some intense stuff in there. It's a content warning. Yeah. Fair play. You know, it's, it's a sleazy idea, and there are sleazy elements to it. Yeah, and, and um, there, the, when it comes to, like, spying in through windows and yeah. stuff, there's still, to this day, there's still, like, some controversy as to what can be published. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the idea I, is I would if say filming, nothing, I would hope, yeah, if, you're, if well, it's but, without the person's knowledge. I mean, the idea is if it's in public, um, then you can film. That's like where a lot of the, um, I hate to bring it up, but if you, if you remember Girls Gone Wild, oh, yeah, there yeah. were these, uh, these guys. Oh, yeah, these like, these like, the, we'll go to Mardi Gras and yeah, we'll offer of, people Yeah, a team money of filmmakers, yeah, would, would approach people and yeah. say, yeah, take off your shirts in public and we can just film that, throw it on a video. You don't even need to send a release for I that. I had blissfully forgotten that existed, actually. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it, 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 the whole empire sort of collapsed a while ago, but this is yeah, weird little really time gross. capsule of the early 2000s. Um, I have, uh, uh, a, a very psychedelic film. It's a little friendlier, but it's also really alienating. I, I, I think I know what you pick. I'm, I'm picking Head. I thought you uh, picked Head. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm picking uh, <laughs> Head from 1968. Um, was written by Bob Rafelson and Jack Nicholson uh-huh. uh, when they were, as the story goes, just blitzed on drugs out in Joshua Tree or something. They went yeah. out and did this writers' retreat. They wanted to write a feature film for the Monkees. Yeah. Uh, Monkees had a really hip TV show uh, in the mid-60s. And the Monkees uh, were, were literally just, the Beatles are a big hit. Can we put together a group kind of like the Beatles that we can, yeah, that are it was, American, it was, who um, we can own, basically? It, it was a very American, very um, mercenary commercial enterprise, the formation of the Monkees. But, but the Monkees themselves were actually very charming, talented musicians. And yeah. they, they got along well and they put out hit records. And a lot of the Monkees songs were I think, really, um, really good. And their show was... Pretty funny. I think the monkeys are more interesting than the Beatles. I think there's a lot more to talk about with the monkeys than the Beatles. I don't. I think that's a bit of a stretch. But I, I stand by that I, statement. I, I'm not saying that there's there has to be a huge difference, mm. but I think that's because that's uh, the Beatles down a smidge. The monkeys, uh, the Beatles were sort of aware of their place as superstars. Well, they the, have uh, to be. They were literally the biggest thing yeah. on the planet. And uh, and it kind of went to their heads, didn't it? Wouldn't you say? Who can blame uh, them? But they still kept making the, uh, great music. Uh. Shut up. Yeah, they did. Thank you. <laughs> you, know, you know the thing about the Beatles? They wrote good songs. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's like the dumbest gonna... thing you can say about well, the Beatles. Well, I'm just saying. Like, um, you know, you can say all this shit went to their head, but you know what they kept doing? Great art. Yeah. So it's hard to complain too um, much about it going to their head. I think the monkeys were more interesting because they themselves were always starkly aware of their place in pop culture mm-hmm. and how they were mocked for being what they called the prefab for. Uh, yeah. And... Um, not, not, not like before the Fab Four, but like they were like prefabricated. prefabricated for, yeah. yeah. Like um, the Spice Girls, they were found by a studio. They wanted yeah, to put together or, the Ultimate um, Girl one, Band. One Direction as well as another yeah. one. No, uh, no disrespect to those bands. It's just how they were created. But, they didn't, ha- they didn't, they didn't start in someone's garage with a dream. You know, yeah. Like the the Peter Tork, Mickey Dolenz, Davy Jones, and Mike Nesmith didn't know each other prior to auditioning to be on right. the Monkees, but they were on the sitcom as big hit. Uh, they put out records. They were big hits. 
Uh, and by the end of the series, you could tell that they were really sick of just the, the bubblegum nature of their right. existence. Uh, they were getting better as musicians. They wanted to stretch as musicians. They wanted to be musicians, and they weren't permitted. Yeah. They put out a TV special called 33 and a Third Revolutions per Monkey, which really kind of addressed that directly. Uh, some of the later episodes of the show were really weird. Uh, look up the Frodus caper at some point. They <laughs> they essentially fight a Triffid that's made of weed. Like, that's the plot of the episode. <laughs> How am I not afraid of this? I want to watch that right now. I want, if we yeah, there's, had more there's time, an episode I of the monkeys. pause the episode and watch this right now. And the Monkeys, I think, is on a streaming service now. I think they finally put it on let me see uh, if I can, one of the let me see if I can confirm that but uh, yeah then in 1968 they made a feature film it was just called head and uh they uh t- took all of those concepts and made them 100 abstract mm. it is this psychedelic drug trap uh you know it starts with the monkeys jumping off a bridge to their deaths yeah that's the beginning of the movie like a whole bunch of people like are gathered like yeah. the news footage teams are just like something something horrible is it's happening like a, yeah. Yeah. a hard day's night had only come out a few years previous mind you yeah and the hard, you remember the beginning of a hard day's night the oh, yeah. bills are running down the street and there's you know mobs yeah. of fans chasing after them yeah uh in uh, Head, there's a scene where the mobs of fans storm the, a monkey's stage and literally tell them, tear them apart. They're like pulling like, off rip their... Rip off their heads. Yeah, they're yeah. like holding their legs and tearing their clothes and eating them alive. Yeah. Uh, the so movie Head weird. also begins with... The, uh, I think it's just Mickey Dolan. Or no, I guess it is all four of them. I think it's all four of them. But they're running down a, a street, then they run across a bridge, and the fans yeah. are chasing them, and they just jump off the bridge. Yeah. And they die. It's like, okay, yeah. we can't kill Pop enough. Like, they're, they're really trying to destroy something with Head. What are they trying to destroy? Fuck if I know. It is impossible to follow Head. It's almost Head's, unwatchable. Head uh, is, is a cavalcade of vignettes, and mm. it's not even... And, and other than the fact that the monkeys are in them, I don't even think there's a theme. I don't even think the monkeys are a theme i think it's just shit that this is again this is bob rifleson who would go on to direct some of the best movies in the 1970s yeah five pieces is a classic i love a movie he did in the 90s with michael Caine, jennifer lopez and jack nicholson called blood and wine Mm. nobody talks about it awesome neo-noir um but yeah it was basically just we 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 have a super group Mm. And they're game to do anything, and the studio doesn't seem to give a shit what we do, so we're going to do all the weirdest shit we can possibly put in front of a camera, and we'll figure out how it works later. And it's just one bizarre fucking vignette mm. after another. Bold visual stylings, uses of color, and uh, cutting between uh, reverse color schemes like within a shot. And it's... Mm. Um, the The... The sequence with uh, Davy Jones dancing with Tony Basil—that's that's the one you're thinking of. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like they're they're, co- it's, they're everyone's dressed in black and everyone's dressed in white, and they try to like do a match on cut so that it's seamless. Mm. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but the point comes across. The, the visual really is really cool. And uh, the movie is about the monkeys looking for meaning yeah. uh, as they kind of sort of wander through these vignettes. The genres are supposed to define them in some sort of way. Yeah. So, and now they're in a French Foreign Legion movie. Are they are they a political band? How political are they? Are they talking about war or are they not? Mm. Uh, it, uh, and there's always like these weird things like monsters and and other characters kind of lurking just off set because it's all very artificial and we'll pan off the set and right. we'll go on to the film studio. And then Frank Zappa walks by with a cow. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, w- what is the function of all of this? Even they don't know. Uh, and... But that in and of itself that, is a statement. And, yeah, well, that, that's the analysis. That's what the movie is about. Yeah. They're just trying to sort of figure out their own identity after 
pop culture has kind of already branded them as one thing. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I th- find so interesting about the monkeys. The Beatles make a movie. Uh, it's it's fun. We're going to make music and be chased by our fans and hang out and just be friends. The monkeys make a movie and they'll fuck with your head. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Uh, and the, the Beatles made a movie that starts with H, which almost made my cut called they, Help. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, it's it's Richard Lester. He also did A Hard Day's Night. And he, yeah. he's a, like a comedian. He likes yeah. to, to sort of fun around and make yeah. Marx Brothers style slapstick comedy. Help is the Beatles if the Beatles were the Marx Brothers. And yeah. it's all about how... Um, uh, somehow Ringo Starr has come into uh, the possession of a ring, mm-hmm. and uh, whoever is wearing this ring He's is destined be to be sacrificed. Sacrificed to like a volcano god or something. Yeah. So um, the people who like adhere to this cult, they're trying to get the ring off of Ringo, and then like it's it's midnight on the day of the sacrifice, and now well shit, now we just have to kill Ringo, mm. and so they're just traveling around the world trying to keep Ringo alive. Mm. I'm particularly fond of uh, the installment in which um, what do you call what do you call that uh, game you play on ice where like curling they're, curling yeah. they're, they're curling and they got like, they attach a bomb to a curling whatever it's slide cur- curling rock a curling rock yeah. and uh, my one of my don't, favorite... don't you watch the Winter Olympics I just... no. Oh well, there you, you go. Well, Done. You, well, you should. It's I, I always watch the Olympics. I love Fine. the Olympics. I'm, I've never been terribly invested mm-hmm. in them. Uh, but one of my favorite things ever is George Harrison running across slippery ice, yelling, mm-hmm. "It's a thingy, a fiendish thingy!" <laughs> I'm also fond of the scene where, for no reason, Paul McCartney shrinks down to one mm-hmm. inch tall and sits out an entire epic fight scene while he's stuck in his own shoe. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Um, See, you love that, but, you know, Head is like that scene feature length. I realize that. That that kind of absurdity is a big part of Head. Head made my runners up. Okay. I respect Head. I didn't grow up with Head the way some people did, and that might Mm. affect my affection for head i think yeah, well, i appreciate I, head more intellectually yeah, than i do as, I actually, a, as a personal experience i came to the monkeys late uh i, I didn't want i i like saw some reruns when i was a kid yeah i saw because it was on tv reruns, when yeah. i was a kid because yeah. I, I also saw i saw a lot of batman i saw a yeah. lot of star trek i saw a lot of the avengers like mm-hmm. the, the, these were like just fun shows from the mid-60s yeah there used to be a lot, a lot of reruns dictated Jer- jerry and sylvia anderson stuff a lot a um, lot of shows that were before our time because they were in syndication and that was where a lot of uh, TV stations got their content from uh, mm. were still relevant parts of our childhood mm. 20 years after the fact. Yeah. Uh, and the monkeys are absolutely one of them. Uh, no, I, but I like it a lot. Okay. I like it a lot. I think it's great. I think people should see it. It's fucking weird and obtuse, sometimes to a fault, but I think it's really interesting filmmaking and I love it. Yeah. Uh, I love Help. I think Help is really, really funny. Uh, it's also got some elements in it that aren't great but for the most part it's a very very funny silly film they bank on some racist imagery um which um it's not the monkeys being racist it's the beatles rather or or the the beatles excuse me um Uh, it, I feel like when you see uh those sorts of images in films from the 60s they're Mm. sort of trying to riff on that imagery but I, rather than nice rather than that. feed into it i guess you can, we, we, you can kind of tell when they're doing it uh, satirically but, that's but it's kind of difficult because the image is so shocking it's hard to take a it satire. doesn't it, here's the deal if we give them benefit of the doubt which i don't think every filmmaker has earned mm. um it's still not necessarily good use of that image and it still is just propagating racist stereotype and so mm. it's still a 
problem. The question is, can the movie still be enjoyed? Is the problem yeah, so some. pervasive and so gross that the movie is ruined? And I would argue that Help is sullied a little, but I don't think it's ruined. Mm. I still think there's enough good-natured, fun stuff in that movie yeah. that I could totally enjoy that film. Uh, by the way, watch Spike Lee's Bamboozled at some point. That's an amazing movie. But uh, the, the my next pick was actually A Hard Day's Night, so there you go. So all of okay. your, all of your <laughs> heartless slamming one of my favorite movies... Uh, well, I, has been I, I taken saying, poorly. <laughs> I, I was just trying to say that. Um, yeah. it, I love a hard day's night. I haven't. I have the Criterion edition. Sure. I love Head. I have the Criterion edition of that. Yeah. Criterion did them both, and I like that. They, have, they haven't um, done Help yet, although there is a perfectly respectable Blu-ray out there. Yeah. Uh, and, and a very nice Blu-ray out there of Magical Mystery Tour, which I feel is a little underrated and also very abstract. Yeah, that's yeah. That's, that's an odd film, Magical yeah. Mystery Tour. Uh, I like a hard day's night. Yeah, uh, I I think it was uh, Roger Eber was writing about it. He said it's it's the one film where you walk into the movie humming the tunes, yeah, rather than walking out and humming the tunes, yeah. Because the, the majority of the songs the, has, were, were were already familiar. Yeah, it's like yeah. the, the best fucking soundtrack of any Kinda. movie ever. So yeah. yeah, Hard Day's Night is a film that was made uh, at the height of the Beatles' popularity when their earlier years. Uh, before they had gotten super Pre- trippy, prior uh, pre acid, yeah, they they were still very poppy and they were still very very friendly uh, uh, figures. Um, they weren't trying to push the limits of music the way that they would later in their careers. Um, you you described it as uh, you know, isn't it fun to just go out and be musicians and be famous? And it's it's that too a little bit. But what I love about it is that Richard Lester. Mm. Uh, and I had, a, <laughs> I had a film professor in college. I took a col- I, I took a class that was the history of European cinema, which is a broad topic. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I believe my professor said something to the effect of, uh, "I don't know if you can show, uh, you know, p- picking picking the movies for a history of European cinema class." Is a fool's errand. There's so yeah. much to choose from. All I knew was that I wasn't going to pick any Richard Lester, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I don't know if that's because he hated him or if he just thought it was a cliche. But he's very accessible in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I think Hard Day's Night is an interesting film because it is about the Beatles at their zenith of popularity, the zenith of being mainstream. Mm. They are chased down the street by by throngs of cheering fans. They're interviewed, they are doing TV appearances, and yet the aesthetic of it is much more like trying to evoke something you might see in like the French New Wave. It is black and white, it is personal, it is intimate, there are some very beautiful uh, shots in it, but it's not trying to be distracting about it. What it's trying to do is it's trying to say, the Beatles know that they're celebrities... And they're trying not to be. Mm-hmm. They're trying to, so be, celebrity trying is to be annoying. normal normal guys. Celebrity yeah. is annoying. They love music. They're funny dudes. And they're very, very funny in this movie. Mm. Um, but the, 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 scene the, of, the strength of, of them comes yeah. from their personality and their talent, not from the artificiality. Yeah, the, so it's kind of the opposite of Head. It's basically trying to, instead of trying to blow up the artificiality, it's trying to shove the artificiality to the side, except when it suits a funny joke. Yeah. And occasionally there are some, there's this one weird joke where uh, the Beatles are stuck in a train car at the beginning with a very snooty British man. Mm. And he has no interest in hanging out with these, these ruffians. And, uh, these youngsters. And so when they feel like they're finally, like, they're not wanted here, they leave 
the room, mm. and uh, they uh, as they're leaving, they say, "Hey, Vista, can we have a bull back?" <laughs> like he's their annoying neighbor, and he's like, "Ugh, those Beatles!" And then it cuts to the Beatles outside the train, chasing after the train, yelling, "Hey, Mister, can we have uh, a bull b- back?" Banging on the window yeah. next to the train. Yeah. They didn't leave the train. No, that's a silly joke. But That's it's that kind joke. of like almost that kind of magical realism that just sort of follows the Beatles around. Like they're larger than life. Not because they are famous, but because they're just cute. Mm. Um, it's a witty film. It's an intimate film. I think it is actually maybe the absolute best like corporate tie-in movie anyone's ever made. <laughs> because the Beatles were a product. Mm. They made a movie because they could be sold. They didn't make a movie because they were passionate about cinema. They made a movie because they were the most popular thing on the planet, and a movie was another way to get money and sell records. And they ended up making one of the most breezy, effortlessly entertaining... It's almost no plot to it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They're just on tour and they get into a couple of misadventures, and the misadventures aren't even that miss- (laughs) <laughs> at, one, at one point uh, yeah. Ringo gets a little dejected yeah. and then he goes out on his own for a little bit and then he just sort of wanders around the park being mm. cute and then that's it <laughs> that whole subplot is over um, there's something to be said for uh, this kind of low intensity movie Head is a high intensity movie Yeah, and even though Hard Day's Night is more famous and it's arguably more claimed I think it's one of the few movies that has ever had like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes with like a ton of movie reviews um, I don't know if that's still true anymore but it was for a while yeah. uh, it's I, I think it's impossible to watch a Hard Day's Night and say I don't get why the Beatles were so popular <laughs> I don't think that's possible I yeah. really don't I think, you'll, I think even if they're not for you you'll go those are those are charming kids. Yeah, I like I those of, kids. Good for them. I remember there was a time in, uh, if you remember the the days of the Beatles anthology. Oh yeah, in the, the late nineties when yeah, they, uh, they they released a whole bunch of unreleased B sides and yeah. radio appearances and, and that, uh, it, yeah. they, they do that every couple of years and then in like twenty twelve ish they put out like that gigantic yeah. box set. It's like you can get the whole mono remasters. It's yeah. like we're gonna go back and do it and get all the Beatles records in one big box. Yeah. Um, the Beatles anthology. Oh, I lost my train of thought. Hang on. You're talking about the Beatles anthology and mm. all the, the the stuff that was on it. Oh, just uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Well, you know, it was I forgot cool. what I was going to say about the you Beatles know was anthology. Cool. The, Be- the Beatles anthology had a lot of like really fun, like little uh, sides with the band and little fun mm. radio appearances and things. And, and again, it's all about kind of humanizing them. And yeah, that's really mm. great. I'm a big Beatles fan. Not all of their movies are oh, bangers. I remember what I was going to say. Um, when that Beatles anthology came out, there was a bit of. Uh, a rivalry between the people who really love the Beatles uh-huh. and the people who really loved Elvis Presley. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. There were Beatles people and Elvis people and never the twain shall meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, it seemed like Elvis was the reigning champ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was selling tons of records mm-hmm. in the 60s. His movies had become a bit of an albatross around his neck because although they made money... Mm-hmm. None of them were particularly good. Like he made a few good ones. Well, he but made like three a year. Like he, he was he made over those things thirty out, yeah. movies. Especially I think especially if you count the two documentaries he did when he was still alive. Mm. He made over thirty motion pictures. I would say six of them were pretty good. <laughs> and you, you've and seen them all. I've seen every single movie Elvis Presley ever appeared in while he was alive. Not like kind of like stock footage or whatever like that. And uh, yeah, the vast majority were completely forgettable crap. Yeah. About eight or nine of them are genuine pieces of crap. Like, 
two of them are like maybe three. Three of them are like legitimately good. Mm-hmm. Maybe five of them are like genuinely entertaining. I'd watch them at any on any given day, and that's it. Like, and the Beatles just came out and did a couple of fucking great movies and it fucked off. Mm-hmm. But you can even see there's this weird thing where uh, one of Elvis's movies. Oh, what was it? There's an Elvis movie where uh, he is hired by a mafioso to follow the mafioso's daughter to spring break and make sure she never has sex. Oh my god. And that's the movie that came out just after the Beatles became a big hit and because then that's the one movie, no sorry, one of two movies he had where he had a band and the band was also had characters and were funny. Mm. Every other time it was just Elvis, but when the Beatles became popular it's like all right, he should have like a Beatles type band in this one. What the hell? I think that was the movie where they had the song Do the Clam. Which uh, was not from the movie Clambig. You would think mm. it was from the Elvis movie Clambig. I have He uh, did not sing the song Do the Clam in the movie Clambig. What the holy fuck? I have a Japanese cover of Do the Clam. Nice. Like this really like dirty psychobilly version of do the clam in japanese it's, it's really good you can tell it's hard uh, to find in that one i know that and interesting bit of trivia i know that do the clam was written by yep. dolores fuller yep and dolores fuller dated ed wood and appeared in a bunch bunch of his movies yep <laughs> weird we are off on a weird connection there huge tangent right now yeah. let's move on what's your next uh, okay um you know what let's stay in the realm of music okay uh, i don't have a musical uh well i guess it is kind of a musical mm. um it came out in 1941. Huh. Uh, it's a bit rare, uh, but if you've seen it, you love it. And it's called Hell's a Poppin. Oh, I haven't seen Hell's a Poppin. Uh, Hell's a Poppin. Uh, one word: H e l l z a Poppin apostrophe. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it starred um, Olson and Johnson? Mm. That is uh, Ol Olson and uh, Chick Johnson, who were a completely now obscure comedy duo from right. the 1940s. Uh, it was put out by Universal, and it starts with this big Busby Berkeley musical, and then the stage breaks, and they all die, and the credit <laughs> sequence is in hell. <laughs> this is the tone we're setting, but it's all very, it. it's all very comedic. I love it. Uh, it sounds and, like the opening of Prom Night Three, the last kiss. And then kiss. everybody's in hell, and the camera pulls back, and they say, "No, we can't have that in the movie." And of course, we're on a soundstage. Nice. So we pull back reality, and the plot of Hell's a Poppin' is about uh, Olsen and Johnson trying to make the movie they're in. Okay. So they're, they're like sort of Very pitching meta. the ideas and trying to come up yeah. when just like, you're going to play the young lovers. And of course the actors who play the young lovers in the movie in the movie are also falling in love and they have these cute little uh, musical numbers that, together. That can be insufferable when done, but when done well, it's so, it's so delightful. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, W.C. Fields did a great film no one talks about anymore called Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. Mm. And it's just him pitching the most impossible movie ever filmed. <laughs> nice. And it's delightful. It's mm. great. But then, but then he, uh, there's, I mm. saw Paris when it sizzles. Uh-huh. I hate that movie. <laughs> I find I find that movie absolutely insufferable yeah. in its approach to like yeah, Audrey Hepburn and William Holden are writing a screenplay. When they write it, you'll see it, and they're the characters mm. in it. And I'm like, I don't give a shit about any of this. But anyway, Hells of Poppin sounds fun. Hells of Poppin is fun, and yeah, yeah it's, it's all all about trying to get the cast together. And there's yeah. like lascivious people going after the young ingenues, and yeah. uh, you know, a, a Russian nobleman is, is is part of the cast. Uh, there's a detective in the movie who's also a magician, uh, and all of the the musical numbers are really really cute. Like the one with the two lovers, mm-hmm. they sort of like. Uh, start presenting like little puppetry and things on the screen as if they are sort of within this little tiny proscenium huh. they're staging for themselves. It's fun. Um, 
you might have heard of Hell's a Poppin in film school because there is a five minute sequence in the middle, mm. uh, which has some of the best dancing in cinema history. Okay, uh, it's the Lindy Hop number. Okay, uh, look, just go to YouTube and look up Hell's a Poppin Lindy Hop because okay. that that's sort of the the scene everybody knows. Um, if you don't know the Lindy Hop, it's like some of the most acrobatic like dance hall dances yeah. you could ever hope to say. Um, people are sort of like thrown in the air. Um, the uh, Let me look up the name of the actual dance. The Arthur White dance troupe known mm. as uh, the, the Lindy Hoppers. Um, yeah. And yeah, Norma Miller is in it. Slim and Slam, a famous dance duo, are yeah. part of it. Um, just unbelievable. Like uh, mm. Fred Astaire would look at that and say, how would they do that? Like it's some of just... Yeah. the most balletic virtuosic but, dancing you'll we, see we talk a lot about like the big big names in dance movies mm. like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers like Gene Kelly genius is the lot of them they were not the only one look up the Nicholas Brothers <laughs> holy shit the Nicholas mm. Brothers were amazing the Nicholas Brothers were just fucking every time they danced it was like Fury Road it was just mm. like what the fuck are they doing can you survive <laughs> that holy right. shit so amazing uh, dancers out there. Yeah. I, I learned about Hell's a Poppin from uh, the mm-hmm. uh, sadly now defunct Cine Family, yeah. uh, which was uh, it was hosted at the Silent Movie Theater here in Los Angeles. Uh, one of the best programmed movie houses you could ever hope to encounter anywhere. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it sadly, was, was run by a creep. It, so it was no it was run by it was run yeah. by creeps, and a lot of people were being exploited, so it shut down because of that. And yeah. uh, good people are no longer being exploited, but uh, but it's a bummer because it was a cool it, venue it was, and they showed a lot of. It was a cool venue and there were actually a lot of good people working there who miss it. But um, a lot of really, uh, really great people were able to show their movies there. They had a really fun game they played at the Cine Family every uh, every once in a while. I think it was twice a year Mm. uh, that they called the Five Minutes Game. Oh, I love the Five Minutes Game. We've reconstructed this experience at home. But the idea was uh, every film you watch is going to be interesting. Maybe not good, but at least interesting for the first five minutes because you're kind of luring yourself into the world of the film. Yeah, because you don't know what's going on. Uh, You don't know who the characters are. So every movie you'd give your attention to for about five minutes and mm. if it's terrible after five minutes your interest will wane yeah and uh, well and also a lot of films try to grab you right away that's yeah. some sort of stinger right at the beginning so what they would do is they would pick like a whole bunch of like super obscure movies like even if you're like whitney and me and you love super obscure like weird cult mm. movies they find even even deeper cuts like, than that there yeah. was like every time i went there was like maybe two movies that i knew and at least a half dozen that i'd never even heard of yeah uh, and we watch the first five minutes, and it's fascinating, and you start and getting switch, into it, and then like and they, it turns off, and everyone it goes, goes It goes black, and they start the next one up right away, and then you're given a ballot. I think yeah. there's like 15 of those movies. Yeah, yeah. And then, then you're given a ballot, and you get to pick which one you want to watch the whole of. Yeah, so and, there's uh, a big will, break, will and there's lunch and stuff. Sometimes and it's a boring movie, and I yeah, get it. We, we, but, we, uh, I, I was at one where we made a horrible choice. Yes. And it was like, we got 10 minutes into this really shitty movie, and it's like, listen, no one's having any fun, right? And we're like yeah this sucks okay we're well, switching that's the danger of the game you want us to watch the one that we think is fun please yeah <laughs> they, so it worked the programmers out. actually say, saved yeah. us that night but uh yeah, I, yeah. I, that opening number where it's all like busby berkeley and they fall into hell and it's like oh, and then it cuts to black it's like well shit i want to see the rest of that thing yeah and if you stayed after hours sometimes they show like the second or the third place film yeah so uh I, we stayed and watched hell's a pop on the big screen like in the middle of the night i wasn't there for that and one. Golly, it was fun. So much, yeah, so much music, so much fun, so much energy. It was yeah. just really, really terrific. I've actually never seen this, and I never actually had it described to me so uh, 
so uh, enthusiastically. So I need to <laughs> I need to check this out. Yeah, I check out Hustle Poppin'. Okay. Well, my next pick is actually uh, another movie I have. That's um, it's a bit of a musical. Okay. It's a bit of a musical. It's the only other movie I have on my list that I would call a musical of some kind. Uh, and it is a movie that was it's interesting pick actually from someone's filmography because it totally fits their filmography, but it is the most mainstream accessible film in their filmography and has led to a weirder like ancillary industry where it became a huge Broadway play hmm. and everyone knows that better than the original now. But I'm talking about John Waters' hairspray. Oh, okay. Yeah, Hairspray's good. That's on my runners-up. Yeah, I love me some Hairspray. <laughs> hairspray was a movie I happened to see on TV before I had any idea who John Waters was. It was my mm-hmm. gateway to John Waters. Uh, I, <laughs> John Waters himself has said that a lot of people discovered it exactly that way. They yeah. saw it on TV. And uh, so they say, oh, I love that Hairspray. Let's get these other movies. Ooh, this Pink <laughs> Flamingo is about the Everglades. Yeah. Because uh, John no, Waters isn't. John Waters is one of the better outsider artists of like late 20th century cinema. Yeah. Uh, and he made movies. He made movies about kooks and deviants and criminals and horrible human beings who you can't help but love. Uh, and yeah, Hairspray was the one movie he did in his like main, in his bulk of his career mm-hmm. that could be shown on TV yeah, in syndication yeah. on in the middle of the day on a weekend. And uh and it, that wasn't really his goal. He no. wasn't trying to just like soften to be, up. He was it was just actually, happened it, to be a softer story. Well, it's and it's a nostalgia piece. It um is. uh Crybaby and uh, which he made in 1990 yeah. was which a little I'm, later. Which I'm also um, very very fond of. It stars yeah. Johnny Depp, which I have mixed feelings about, but mm-hmm. he's it's, it, it's still a very good movie. I like Crybaby. Yeah, Crybaby's really great. It's a good double feature Crybaby and Hairspray. Yeah. Uh but uh those are both movies about his own childhood in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. and Hairspray is specifically about the early 60s when local dance competitions and music hosts were big business. Yeah. Uh, Just in, like, local cities, back when local TV was a thing. Yeah, and it's also about a time when uh, musical uh, musical styles, dancing styles, and also just society at large was beginning to desegregate. Yes. Uh, And it was desegregating not because the people in charge wanted it to, because people in charge were racist as shit. Mm. But it was desegregating because the youth wanted it to. Everyone else was like, no, this is stupid bullshit. And we all like everyone. And can we, whatever. So Hairspray is a story of uh, a teenage girl played by Ricky Lake. Uh, mm. She's got big hair. And she loves to dance. And she dreams of going on this one dance program, this local dance show uh-huh. that plays popular music. And you go on the show, and you dance, and you become a local celebrity if you're really good and everyone likes you. Mm. Uh, she gets to go on the show. She gets to become popular. But she starts uh, getting uh, um, socially aware and actually trying to uh, break down uh, the walls that are preventing people of color from being on that show. And starts hanging out with more mm. people of color. Starts... Uh, 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 really pissing off the parents, and the parents lead this whole big riot. And... Um, it, it leads to Debbie Harry trying to blow people up with like an explosive device and her beehive hairdo. Um, De- Debbie Harry plays the the yeah. mom of the villain. Yeah, um, the villain who is um, um, not 
Not Penny. Penny was um, the best friend character. No, hold on a second. Uh, she actually ended up, uh, she changed her name and became a... Uh, well, she became a pop star known as Vitamin C. That's it. I was trying to remember <laughs> who, what she changed her name the, to. The, yeah, the, the, the villain of Hairspray name. is Vitamin C. Vita- yeah, Vitamin yeah. C is the villain in Hairspray. That's hilarious. But she was not Vitamin C yet, so it was just good. To, no. It just worked out. But no, it's got Sonny Bono. It's got Jerry Stiller. It's got Ruth Pia Zadora reads Howl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really great scene where Pia Zadora reads Howl. I forgot. There's a scene where they're like running away from all the racists and like, they, they run they into just, like this beatniks layer yeah. and piazadora is in there yeah they start realizing that all oh, these beatniks are actually a little bit a little bit more hardcore than we are mm. we should probably leave i um, saw the best minds of my generation she's really digging <laughs> in it's fantastic <laughs> i love it the pieces um hairspray touches on some real things hairspray is a real movie about real stuff but it is also wonderfully breezy it's a delightful comedy absolutely funny everyone in it is charming the villains are terrible people but they're played by people who we know don't believe this like debbie Mm. harry as like the (laughs) evil racist mom you're like that's Mm. that's like counter programming on the acting line you know that's like that's that's exactly not who you get for that role Mm. and that's why it's brilliant that's why it's funny that's why it's camp and and divine plays edna turnblad the mom and divine also plays like Oh, like yeah. the racist mayor's aide yeah, or like something outside yeah. of drag which is very very yeah. rare and it was it sucks because hairspray was a big breakout hit everyone liked it it was very mm-hmm. successful and uh divine passed away before she could see that yeah yeah and that sucks yeah. uh, he divine was, I apologize. divine was he but thank um, you i apologize yeah yeah. Uh, uh yeah I, and you can go to uh divine's grave site to this yeah. day and there's still cha-cha heels on the yeah. tombstone uh so rest rest in peace uh glenn milstead aka yeah. divine I, I have a confession to make i've actually never seen the remake of hairspray with john travolta uh, and all I, those others i've seen the yeah it was turned into a broadway show one of a bunch of tonys yeah. and then it was in turn that broadway show was turned into another movie mm-hmm. and yeah um because traditionally the part uh, of edna turnblad was played by a man yeah uh it, on stage it was harvey fire Scene. Uh, the and then on it, in the movie it was John Travolta. That was just stunt casting. That's stunt casting, but it's shameless stunt casting. Mm. Was he any good? He, he's fine. I mean, okay. he, he's a song and dance guy. He can do yeah. the songs and dance. And uh, oh, I'm sure he could. I just and, I, um, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Uh, Christopher Walken played uh, Edna Turnblad's <laughs> husband. Played the dad. So that, see, I forgot about that. That's great casting. John, John Travolta and, and Christopher Walken <laughs> doing like the dance numbers together is pretty delightful. That's pretty cute. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're uh, nice. So it's nice. It's okay. It's okay, yeah. Okay, but great I, music. I, I love that. Yeah, Mark Shaman. I think. I, I really need to film. see it. I really need to see it. But I love the original. The original made my list. What's your next pick? Let's see. Do I have any other musicals on here? I don't think I really do. Uh, I have one. You know what? I'll, I'll I'll move on to this one because I bought the soundtrack to it recently. So as okay. long as we're thinking about uh, musicals, uh, Waxwork Records put out the soundtrack to House, uh, the 1977 Yay. film from Japan. Uh, it didn't I, I d- make my list, but I love the pieces. I do love this trend of uh, these boutique vinyl outlets putting out like these really tricked out soundtracks to the shittiest possible horror movies. Oh, uh, was isn't shitty, but we're no, talking about obscure stuff that really we normally obscure. never get, like a, a, an orchestral score release. Yeah, and they're, and they're really, weird, really yeah. like, you pay $50 and get this like mm. colored vinyl of some like... Five five five, some like bargain basement horror movie. They know exactly the how many they're going to sell, um, and they, they have the right price. It's a good market. They're not trying <laughs> to over over push it. They know it's a niche market, but mm. they'll pay. Uh, but House has amazing music. Um, House, the the story of the music is actually interesting with House because uh, it was composed long before the movie was made. Oh yeah, um, I forgot about that. The uh, 
Nobuhiko Obayashi is the name of the director. Uh, he did my favorite film of uh, two years ago. Mm. Or, or it was last year, maybe. Uh, it was recently. It's called The Labyrinth of Cinema. And um, he, he started in commercials, Nobuhiko Obayashi. And uh, you can tell by watching his movies because they're all very striking. There's a lot of really busy images. He has this really kooky sense of humor. Um, Labyrinth Soon is really interesting because he's actually interrogating the depiction of war in mm. film and how that has unduly influenced our minds as citizens. Um, like, it, it's actually an, an essay about that sort of thing, but it feels like this three-hour slapstick epic. That's a really excellent movie. But in 1977, uh, he put out a movie called House. Uh, it kind of infiltrated the American cult movie scene in 2005. Right. So it's kind of a more recent entry in, in the American uh, cult canon. Mm. Uh, but it's a haunted house movie, kind of. Uh, it's about a, a group of... For, for lack of a better description. Yeah, uh, it's about a group of uh, schoolgirls, uh-huh. teenagers, who uh, have decided to go on a vacation out to a remote cabin in the woods. But it's yeah. a big house out it's in, the middle, exactly. in the countryside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they all have their various dreams. One of them wants to be a kung fu fighter. One of them wants to be a singer. One of them uh, wants to be a concert pianist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Um, the story goes that the director asked his daughter what scares her, and he's going to put that in his horror movie. Mm-hmm. And she, she was five, so, so she had weird, weird things, things kind yeah. of scared her, like mirrors yeah. scared her. Like what, what uh, if what if the piano that I'm learning to play mm-hmm. eats my fingers? Yeah, so th- there's a scene of that. Uh, yeah. I, I think cats were a big problem. Yeah. So there's a lot, a lot uh, of weird cat so. stuff in, yeah, in the movie. Seen the film. Uh, it is so surreal. This and is it's, one of the weirdest movies you will ever see. Yeah, uh, that's the basic plot of the movie yeah, they go and, to and this, they go there and there's the, the spooky old woman yeah. there is clearly like uh, this spectral ghost yeah. but uh, and they start getting attacked by various monsterish things and the the thing there's this uh, trope in a lot of horror movies everything from the shining to the stepfather to misery where the protagonists are trapped in an isolated location that's very dangerous but someone is on the way Yes. There's one character who might solve the mystery, or there, is, is it, so it's Scatman Carruthers. Will, will he the get Shining. there on time? Yeah. As the, it's the Richard attention. Farnsworth yeah. in Misery. And yeah, will they get there in time? And they almost never do. Or they do when they die immediately, but they brought a gun with them, and the mm-hmm. gun is the thing that allows them to survive, that kind of deal. Um, in The Shining, Scatman Carruthers, the only only thing he does right is he brings like a, a snowcat for them to drive. Like that's yeah. it. That's the only use he has. Um, but uh, in house, they're waiting for their teacher to show up. Mm. What happens to the teacher? <laughs> I will not ruin. I will not ruin it. It happens I, at the end of the movie. It so happens yeah. at the end. It's, it's towards. It, you have to wait for a while. But it's like, yeah. will the teacher get there in time to save these uh, school kids from horrible peril? And I, I'm just gonna say, what happens to that teacher is by far. The most bananas thing I have ever seen <laughs> in any motion picture. That, that shit was bananas. That is, that, is, that, that shit yeah. is bananas. And I, <laughs> I don't use that term lightly. If you know the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know the movie, heed my words. Bananas. <laughs> but uh, every single sequence in Haozu, it doesn't mm. necessarily make any sort of logical sense. It plays very much like a dream. It just fritters from one yeah. weird incident to another that sort of makes sense on kind of a this is creepy level but doesn't make any logical sense. Mm. But every sequence in it is so perfectly constructed to make what's happening seem both kind of 
childlike and whimsical like it's from like a kid's storybook or something like that it's got that kind of so slightly arch presentation but it's also deeply disturbing and fucked up like there's a scene (laughs) there's a scene in which one of the characters like knows martial arts and you think she's gonna like be able to like yeah the character's named kung fu yeah 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 yeah. they have names like gorgeous and fantasy and mac and kung fu it's that kind of movie you think Kung Fu is going to be able to use their Kung Fu skills in mm. order to maybe fight the demon cat or something like that in the movie. And at some point in the movie, uh, Kung Fu gets literally cut in half. And you think to yourself, well, I guess that's not going to help anyone. Fortunately, her legs keep fighting. Well, it's not that she gets cut in half. It's that her top half gets stuck in another dimension. Ah! So her legs stay in our dimension and continue to fight. I, you, the top you were, able to, her, yeah, you were was, able to suss out what was happening a lot more cleanly than I was. Yeah. But regardless, yes, it's... it's mm. um, There's a, a portrait of a cat that comes alive and, like, yeah. pukes blood. Uh, there's, there's a watermelon that's clearly a human head, but it's also a watermelon. And, and I'm, then, like, I, the, the human head, like, kind of flies me. around a little yeah. bit. And, uh, yeah. But then there's all this, like, really plinky, whimsical music yeah. and kind of... Uh, uh, America, not American, the country, America, the band, uh, sort of style of, <laughs> of like really kind of gentle hippie rock kind of floating through the back. And yeah, the story yeah. was that the composer composed the music, completed it, turned it into a soundtrack, and then the film wasn't made for like another two years. Mm. And by then the script had changed a bunch. So they had to find these weird ways to sandwich in this really strange music. Yeah. So it, it feels really off putting. It's like a, it's like watching a music video on reverse. There's everything so strange about this movie. Uh, uh, Nobuhiko Bayashi was really prolific. Oh, yeah. But, dozens of movies. But the movies mostly didn't really make it over here, and it's kind of yeah. hard to find most of them. Uh, he did a live-action adaptation of one of my favorite anime movies, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, mm-hmm. which I've been meaning to find and, and seek out, and I still haven't gotten around to it. Um if you were looking for a, a good double feature with Haozu, because a lot of people have seen Haozu. Haozu started off as this kind of cult oddity. People discovered it, made the midnight movie circuit. It finally has a Criterion edition. I wouldn't ever call it mainstream, but it's accessible. You it's, can it's, find it. It's, it's a known quantity it, at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's a cult yeah. movie people talk about and go, oh, I've heard of that, even if they haven't seen it. Um, if you can track down, occasionally you can find it on YouTube. Uh, a movie he made in 1987 called The Drifting Classroom. Which is, this about, movie. which is about a uh, a school, I think it's a school for like various like diplomats' kids, so they all like, speak different languages from different parts of the world uh, in Japan, that uh, falls into a giant sinkhole and into another dimension. <laughs> okay. And it's fucked up and strange. Uh, and it's a really cool double feature with Haozu. So if you've seen Haozu and you want to see something a little bit more like it, it doesn't begin with the letter H, but Drifting Classroom is also still pretty good. All right. Yeah. You know, no movie's perfect. They can't all begin with the letter H. <laughs> that's that's your gauge. That's my gauge. Uh, my next pick is a it's a good segue actually. And it makes sense. I think you'll appreciate it. Mm. Uh, and this is a movie which is often considered one of the best horror movies ever made. I still think it is probably the zenith of the haunted house genre. Mm. And it is Robert Wise's The Haunting. Uh, did I choose? The, you know what? I put the haunting on my runners up, and, okay. I, and I have a very good reason why. When we get to my next pick, but, I, I want right. to hear it. Uh, but in any case, the haunting uh, is one of the scariest movies ever made from one of the best genre filmmakers ever made, and I almost never hear him described this way. But Robert Wise, who got to start editing movies like Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. uh, spent the majority of his career doing amazing work, but not in consistent genres. Well, he was. Um, 
I know some people take up te- uh, exception to the term, but he was a workman, mm. uh, uh, or excuse me, a journeyman. That was the word I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, and that he could very capably move wherever he was needed. Yeah, he wasn't uh, just an expert in like one thing. What do you do? I do relationship comedies, or mm. I do horror. Like, you could give Robert Wise any genre, and mm. he'd probably kill it. I, he I did... feel the same way about Stephen Frears. You know, yeah. the, the really capable filmmakers who don't have. A notable style, other than they just do it. Well. They never got pigeonholed. Yeah. So, like, so in addition to making this one of the scariest movies ever made, The Haunting, uh, he also made one of the best uh, war movies ever made, Run Silent, One Deep. Mm-hmm. He also made one of the best sci-fi movies ever made, The, the Day, Day the Earth Stood Still. still. It's also one of my favorites. Another one of the best sci-fi movies ever made, although it's a little underrated. Uh, Star Trek Motion Picture. He I also like did The Andromeda Strain. Uh, he he did the sound of music. He did the sound of fucking music, <laughs> and the West, and co-directed West Side Story, the original West Side Story. Yeah, uh, he he was just an incredible filmmaker, and every single and and if you look at a lot of those movies, you might say to yourself, "This doesn't look like the exact like if you watch The Haunting back and forth with Sound of Music, doesn't feel like the same guy did it. No, like no. he's very very flexible in his storytelling style, but he always." was wonderful at picking in the right imagery and getting the right casts and understanding the specific needs of the story he was telling and changing his style to meet that. Uh, The Haunting, at least 1963, based on Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House. There was a whole Netflix series about it. I watched a couple episodes of it. I was enjoying what I saw. I just never finished it because I got busy and I didn't have to do it for work. That's on me. Um... It's one of the great all-time horror movie setups. There's a creepy house. We're gonna go stay in that house. For reasons. I don't really matter what they are. You know, we're gonna research fear. It's we're a, gonna I research... Gonna say, it's the, a fear study. Yeah, we're that's, gonna research... That's the, um, yeah, that's, that's the, the pretense excuse. they give. Yeah. That's the excuse. There's a lot of good movies with that premise. I'm a huge fan of The Legend of Hill House, uh, which I think is one of the other great haunted house movies ever made. doesn't get talked about as much. If you haven't seen it... You will love it. It's so fucking great. But The Haunting stars Julie Harris as um, a woman who has basically dedicated her entire life to taking care of other people. And when she gets this opportunity to be part of this weird study, she jumps into it. This is my opportunity to get out of my boring life and do something exciting. And she ends up uh, staying with uh, the delectably uh, queer Claire Bloom. Mm. Uh, and uh, Russ was, Hamblin, uh, who's like the creepy most, guy who like owns the house uh, yeah, or Claire, has inherited the house. Claire, Claire Bloom uh, is yeah. not explicitly queer, but she reads as queer. Yeah. Uh, when they remade it in '99, they just made the character queer. Yeah. Like, Catherine yeah. Zeta-Jones is just just the text. The subtext became text. Yeah. She, she it just, wasn't much of a. She subtext. talks about her boyfriends and her girlfriends. It's yeah. like it, in, it was, in even in '99, it's like that's not even titillating anymore. No, but um. They stay in this haunted house. It is the haunted house is creepy as fuck. It is shot gorgeously. Mm. It is clearly gigantic and impressive, and yet deeply uncomfortable. There's nothing about it feels inviting. It is a masterwork of production design and cinematography. Uh, over the course of the film, uh, Julie Harris becomes increasingly convinced that there is a supernatural presence in the house. However, the other people in the movie, for the most part don't see it yeah they don't experience it and the movie invites you to decide is this just julie harris's character a character who seems to probably have a history of mental illness or at least her family does uh is this her cracking after a lifetime of pressure 
Is this a haunted house manipulating her? Is it both? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what your takeaway is. It doesn't matter what what because the movie never comes out. It's not like the On the Bond movie has like CGI ghosts doing shit on camera. Yeah, the it's... haunting is explicitly frightening without ever explicitly clarifying that this is one hundred percent supernatural. If you believe in your heart of hearts that nothing supernatural happens in the haunting, it's still fucking terrifying because it is a great psychological study. If you believe that there is something supernatural happening, it is fucking terrifying because the characters are so rich and plausible and wonderfully uh, uh, developed Mm -hmm. that you get much more invested in it than you might have otherwise. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are sound design quirks that would end up being like used by like Sam Raimi and Evil Dead that are just like you can just hear the bones creak in the fucking house. If you just want to see a masterclass in tone and atmosphere, you cannot find a better film, I think, than The Haunting. In fact, I came very close to picking this as my number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney, your thoughts? Um, the ambivalent, or not the ambivalence, the ambiguity, ambiguity. Yeah. Of, uh, of whether or not it's a haunted story. Um is what kind of what gives the haunting a lot of its power, which yeah. is why that remake was so offensive to so many people because they make it explicitly supernatural. Um, yeah. I think some of the images in that remake are fine. Uh, it's there's it's, some good stuff it's, in uh, it. Like, you know. It's it's literally one dog away from being Scooby Doo. Some, someone yeah, you you said pointed this a, out. A, a friend, yeah, a friend of mine pointed this yeah. out to me. Um, yeah. Catherine Zeta Jones is clearly Daphne. Yeah, Lily Taylor is the Velma of that. Uh, mm-hmm. We have Owen Wilson playing a very stoner like shaggy character. Yeah, and the intellectual guy that's Liam Neeson. So you have. So Fred. Fred. basically yeah. Fred. That is the best Scooby Doo movie we've got. It just doesn't have Scooby Doo in it. Yeah, it's just missing the dog. Look, look at any. Go to Google if you can't picture it in your head. Just Google The Haunting 1999 and just look at any picture of the entire cast. And if someone mm. said we did a Scooby Doo movie where they're all like in their 30s or 40s, mm. and you'd be like, that would be the perfect cast in 1999. Yeah. That'd be <laughs> that, the that, perfect that cast. And they're all playing this. It's weird, actually. Yeah. And it kind of it kind of rescues the movie a little bit for me because I got this kind of head that way. Because yeah. I don't think it works. There, there's some good cinematography in mm. it. Like the production design is well, neat, when it's, but I'm not a fan. I didn't mind that it was explicitly supernatural because clearly it's a different kind of a story. I, I don't mind um, that in theory. Yeah, I think in practice uh, it made it look they made it look ridiculous. When uh, when it was like little incidents of things, uh, like ghostly things you see in the shadows or the yeah. walls are changing around, or like the, the bed sheet yeah. billows in a way that's probably no wind. Yeah, there's could a, do or, that. or there's yeah. like a, a face in the in the fireplace. It looks like it turns toward you and you're not really sure. That stuff was all kind of cool. Yeah, uh, it's when the ghost sort of like solidified into like a single supervillain monster yeah. at the end just starts floating down the hallway and, and Lily like, oh, Taylor on. starts explaining the plot yeah, and says no it's all about family and I'm like no you were spooky until now and now you're just you, stupid you, you, can, um, you can be unambiguous and still be scary or at the very least interesting and thrilling yeah. and that movie just but yeah the, the original calculation uh, puts puts it all in the characters heads and that they're all kind of uh sort of tired yeah that that's something that I, I really took away from the first time i saw the haunting is that these are like adult characters who are sort of beleaguered by their experiences they're all ostensibly psychic characters in the movie mm. and uh they, they're sort of afflicted mm. by their gifts and uh they're all a little bit um 
just sort of worn down by life, especially the main character, the, the, the Julie Harris character. Um, so when all of it starts to appear as if it might be in their heads, it feels that like it just adds to the texture. It feels that much more real yeah. uh, and it makes the film that much more interesting when it's yeah. not clear what it is. Uh, that's why I dig it. I, yeah, I, I, I agree great. with you. I think it's one of the better haunted house movies out there. Um, I left it off my list just because I didn't want too many haunted house movies. I already, already had a house. You already had another one. And you? I had another one in mind. Oh, so, you did, did. You did it. What did I do? You put the house on haunted hill. I did put the house on haunted hill okay, on my fine. list. Uh, the look, original, not the remake. Not the remake. Um, I like the remake a lot, actually. That's a fun flick. It, it, it's the MTV version of the original. But it's, um, but it's better than yeah. most MTV type of movies. and it's, it's genuinely a good spook house kind of film. Uh, yeah. yeah like it's, it's a perfectly good slumber party flick. Yeah, it got um, uh, Jeffrey Combs as, as the like the ghostly monster in that one. And Great cast. And Jeffrey, how could you do better? And Jeffrey Rush playing literally just playing Vincent Price. Like he's, More or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the original, I, I can't go... I can't let... A, a William Castle film slide me by. <laughs> so uh, I got to mention William Castle. Um, yeah, well, this was uh, 1959. Uh, right when he was like t- sort of taken off oh, with yeah. Peak uh, William Castle, William Castle b- becoming who he was going to be. Now, um, mm. I've said this before. Uh, I feel like the Tingler is sort of like the peak of his career. Yeah, uh, and it's it's, it's sort of like it's the zenith of what he. Uh, it's it's the perfect like amalgamation of. Good movie mm. and wild gimmick. Yeah, it's, yeah. it was both um, of those things. That the scene made a lot of good movies. They weren't always matched with a good gimmick. The Tingler and, uh, married the two perfectly. Uh, the House on Haunted Hill did have a gimmick because this yeah. this was uh, the, the height of when William Castle was doing it. William Castle, by the way, had already made forty movies. Yeah, he did like these cheapy westerns and a lot of these genre films that he didn't give a damn about. No, he found uh, his he found he his was, voice over time. Yeah, and uh, well, over t- he was just dreaming of what he wanted to do. Exactly, and he wanted to do horror movies. Uh, Kid-friendly horror movies, but still like strangely scary in a way. Yeah. Uh, you could you could watch them as a little kid and not be it's, terribly. It's scary. like going to a haunted house on Halloween. Yeah, you're gonna it, go ah, and maybe maybe if you're young or very very susceptible, you might lose some sleep that yeah, night. More, but you'll get over it. It won't be too traumatizing. More, more than anything, and I've said this before, and some people have have taken exception to this theory of mine. But little kids like to be scared in a haunted house kind of a way. To an extent, uh, yeah. If, and, if, and I feel if like they like to be scared or they like to be reassured afterwards, or they. Just are drawn to horror in a way, whether or not it's scary. They like you know mm-hmm. skeletons and spooky things. Well, a lot of and kids' stories like, uh, that we think of as very benign have terrifying elements: mm-hmm. the wolf and Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, are going to eat your bones, you know that kind of thing. I feel like William Castle tapped into that. He understood that kids like to be scared in a fun way, and he knew yeah. how to make horror movies fun. Uh, and it wasn't just the gimmicks. Like, the movies themselves actually have sort of a, a little bit of a wink to them. There's a sparkle, a sense of humor yeah. to, to William Castle's movies. Uh, the gimmick for The House on Haunted Hill was a skeleton. <laughs> that was it. It's one of, it's, they called it Emergo or Emergo. And, yeah, the uh, idea is the skeleton would come out of the screen. It was, uh, it was a skeleton... On, on a, a pulley, wire, yeah, <laughs> and they would just at, some, at a point during the movie they would just slide the skeleton down over mm. the audience, and people would like throw their their snacks at it to try to knock the skeleton off, and they'd succeed. And you know what? I have I I wasn't born in time to ever see a William Castle gimmick like mm. in its truest state, and it's in the wild. Yeah, of all the ones I've read, that's 
one of the least interesting. <laughs> that's, that's some pretty. That's kind of lazy for William well, Castle standards. It's not very high yeah, concept. I it's not very which, interesting. Uh, which film it was of his? But um, he, one of his films was uh, reported to be so scary that you'll fall out of your seat. Yeah. So the gimmick was a seatbelt. Yeah. He yeah. equipped he equipped theater seats with seatbelts to keep you in your seat yeah. in case you got too scared. Like that's a pretty that's pretty that's thin. pretty limp but, uh, but at least it's tactile you get to have that's true you get to put a, it on yourself it's, it's kind of uh, like a like a theme park experience you know mm. like it's like okay we'll buckle ourselves up yeah you know but the, sometimes no, were, nothing beyond that you just buckle yourself so, up sometimes but. they were conceptual he did a, i actually really like this movie he did a movie called mr sardonicus that's a fun one uh and uh, that's like a really great movie about this really creepy supervillain type character uh and at the end of the movie the protagonists have the option to either that's the punishment poll yeah that's right. well the protagonist can decide okay are we going to give this villain the respite they so want or are we going to leave them in a permanently tortured existence mm. and William Castle playing himself gives the op- the yeah, audience the sto- option he stops to vote the movie. You, you can vote in the punishment poll you can decide to punish Mr. Sardonicus or to have mercy on Mr. Sardonicus and the idea is that if the audience was feeling merciful that day, mm. there'd be a happy ending for Mr. Sardonicus. Mm. No such ending was ever filmed. No, they didn't ever film that. There was no there happy was ending. only an unhappy ending yeah. for Mr. Sardonicus, so it's purely conceptual, but it's fun to watch. Uh-huh. It's a neat idea, and it kind, of, it, it, it kind of raises a question about that kind of interactivity, about how the audience... We came to see a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Our bloodlust must be sated. <laughs> you know, there's something kind of knowing yeah, but, and self-aware uh, about that. So that's kind of cool. But going back to uh, the, the yeah. House on Haunted Hill, um, it, it has, this is a premise you've heard because it comes from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people have ripped off this idea, but Vincent Price yeah. plays an eccentric millionaire mm-hmm. who's invited people to up to his haunted house and offered them $10,000 if they can stay the night. It's uh, so haunted. It's so haunted, and I'm going to scare you all. He's all very sinister about it, and uh, and of course he's trying to scare them off. Yeah, just because he's a kind of a sadistic dickhead that way. Sure. And of course, there's more intrigue to the plot than that, but that's yeah. kind of the setup. Uh, and of course, as the film goes on, you know, monsters start appearing and scary things start scaring people off, and then uh, you do realize that Vincent Price is manipulating some of mm-hmm. this. Like he's. Yeah, but is he manipulating all of it? Yeah, maybe is there it's other actual... other haunted things going yeah. on is in the he, house is on he, haunted did hill? He, did he make a fake haunted house and an actually haunted house? Which mm. is kind of putting a hat on a hat, but um, okay. It was so confusing because the haunting. Yeah. Uh, the full title is the haunting of Hill House. That's the original title of the book. Yeah. And William Castle's film is the House on Haunted Hill. So it kind of so kind of took kind it away from to, like, Robert Wise. Yeah. Really, kind of concentrate as to which one you wanted to see. Um, yeah, they're very different films. Yeah. So, you know, similar people go into a scary house. Mm-hmm. Will they lose their mind or die? But um, Robert Wise's film is this dark, mm. you know, ominous psychological horror. And William Castle is it's just a thrill, like it's, it's a thrill ride. There's yeah, a skeleton in the closet, people. <laughs> that, there shouldn't be a skeleton yeah. there. You've probably that seen that would be uh, scary if you saw that skeleton. You don't like skeletons, do you? And the, there's a scene where a skeleton walks across a room, and it's like the clumsiest marionette yeah. you've ever seen. But I love that kind of shit. See, this is uh, my thing. I, with this I, I love I, how kind of hmm. how a lot of its thrills and its fright comes from how lo-fi it is. Sure. And I think that's true of a lot of William Castle movies. It's true of a lot of B movies, just in general. That's true. I do think that there's a line, though. I don't think that it just because, 
your low budget and your heart's in the right place means that you're going to do a great job. Mm. I love a lot of Wayne Castle movies. There was a time when we were podcasting, you can go back to some mm. episode or whatever, I don't, I, I couldn't tell you which one, where I, w- I would freely admit I haven't seen a lot of Wayne Castle movies. Right. And I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen a lot more since then. And I've right. liked almost every one I've ever seen. And I would actually argue that some of his movies are like legitimately underappreciated classics. I love... The Joan Crawford movie Straight Jacket. <laughs> Straight Jacket is pretty fun. I think Straight Jacket is a legitimately some, damn good motion picture. Some people have asked, "What's the gimmick in in Straight Jacket?" And William Castle said, "Joan Crawford." Joan Crawford is, is oh, my gimmick. However, he also would give you like a cardboard axe. Uh, you also handed uh, a cardboard axe. It's something to take home. A, it's, it's not a, a gimmick. It's just a prop. It's a prop. Yeah. It's a souvenir, though. It's something. It's an extra thing to bring you into the theater. Yeah. Um, I love Mr. Sardonicus. I love 13 Ghosts, the original 13 Ghosts. The original 13 Ghosts is great. I think yeah. it's a great movie that like actually like like treads the line between genuinely scary and very silly in a really wonderful way. Mm. Uh, I love that movie to pieces. Um, I think The Tingler is a masterpiece. I totally agree with you on that. I, I, I don't get House on Haunted Hill. I don't understand your affection for it. I, I appreciate. <laughs> here's what I appreciate. Uh-huh. The Price is great. Uh-huh. The premise is a classic. Yeah. I find it so boring. Oh, I, I don't just, like the I, I just think the execution kind of is, around and I scared just think and, the execution uh, is dull. I just think the execution, there's so much promise in that. And this is actually one of the movies where, I, you know, I owe it a rewatch. I haven't watched it in like a long time. Okay. Maybe I'll rewatch it with like my modern contemporary sensibilities and I'll like it more than I used to. But for me, this is one of those horror movies where I actually prefer the remake. I think the remake is it doesn't the, the, re, the remake is fine. The remake I don't, is I don't mind fine. That one, no. I, th- I think the remake it has a lot of that MTV imagery, but I think it employs it a lot better. It's got a really dynamite ensemble cast, and they all got the memo. They all know exactly what movie they're making. Even though there's a lot of like rapid cutting, you know, early CGI kind of scare bullshit. Mm-hmm. I actually think they're inventive enough with it that it ends up being genuinely unnerving. There's a bit at the beginning of that movie that legitimately scared the crap out of me. And I think about it to this day with the the roller coaster. The roller coaster, yeah. There's a bit where, because in that version, uh, the the evil millionaire uh, is uh, an amusement park owner. Mm. And he specializes in terrifying amusement park experiences. And at the beginning of the movie, some reporters are going on a preview of his latest roller coaster. And they get in the roller coaster and there's a, you know, another, you know, cart in front of them and they're going on this scary roller coaster. And then we cut to like an engineer telling Jeffrey Rush, there's a problem. And Jeffrey Rush says, what? And then we see the track has bent. And the reporters watches the cart in front of them uh, well, flies well, off the track. Uh, well, but yeah, the, the the track they notice is bent while the car has already been launched. Yeah, and so, the car yeah. in front of them flies <clears throat> off the track completely. It's one of the scariest <clears throat> fucking things. Because not only would that be the scariest thing in the world to actually <clears throat> have happen to you, to see it happen to someone else and know it's coming in 20 seconds <clears throat> is like the scariest <laughs> fucking thing ever. But it turns out what he's actually telling him is something completely banal. And the, like, roller coaster cart that flies off is part of the ride, which is wildly irresponsible. Yeah. It feels like that's totally dangerous and should never be a thing. But I think of that moment every single time I go to an amusement park and I do not go on the roller coasters. <laughs> now, I don't go on the roller coasters because of that. I don't go on roller coasters because I tend to, like, get nauseous pretty easily on roller coasters. So I can do like one or two roller coasters and then I'm done for a day. Going to Magic Mountain is wasted on me. 
but yeah, I think about that constantly. It's just an <laughs> image that is always stuck in my head. But I, I, I appreciate the original. I wouldn't. It's nowhere. It's it's not even my runners up. It's nowhere oh, near I, my list. Uh, I Sorry. dig it. I dig it. I, I dig the cast. I dig the sort of. I, and it's it's a, a little little fun mm-hmm. thrill ride. It's a little low budget. It's got fun skeleton stuff and mm-hmm. good screams, and you're you're done in seventy five minutes. Yeah. It's easy enough to find because it lapsed into the public domain, right? So you've probably seen a lot of clips of it. Yeah, and, they they did a riff tracks of it as well. It's been mm-hmm. colorized. Don't see it colorized. Um, no, no, no. See, see the no. original black and white. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Anyway, uh, well, my next pick is also a horror movie. I think it is. Yeah, it's my last horror movie. Okay. It is a total 180 tonally from House on Haunted Hill. Okay. House on Haunted Hill is a fun, you know, let's go to a matinee. Whole family can probably not be too traumatized by it. You know, uh-huh. fun Disney kind of spook house kind of thing. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, on the other hand, (laughs) is one of the bleakest motion pictures ever filmed. Yeah, yeah. It is the single most harrowing serial killer movie ever made. There is death in people's hearts, and that's that. That's the movie. That's the the point of the movie. There's so many great movies about serial killers out there. Uh, I think that the ones that try to get inside the killer's head are the ones that are, if you're doing it right, uh, really, like, pushing yourself to the edge of empathy. Mm. Uh, it's so easy to try to try to make a serial killer seem like, you know, fun. Like, you know, like, you know, Anthony Hopkins, he's evil, but if you're polite to him, maybe he won't kill you. You know, that kind of thing. Like, no, 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 no. Something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is just a person with a void inside of them. Mm. And they're played by Michael Rooker. And Michael Rooker... Best performance he ever gave. Easily best performance he ever gave. And honestly, one of the great horror movie performances, period. And if your familiarity with Michael Rooker is mostly limited to his late era stuff, where he does a lot of like fun cameos or smaller roles in like Marvel superhero movies, that's nice. I'm glad he's got that level of success. Good for him. Mm. Um, He had a very has had a very rich and varied career with a lot of interesting performances throughout it. And Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, if you've only ever seen him in Guardians of the Galaxy, and then you watch Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, <laughs> your, your, your neck will snap from the whiplash. Well, there's, um, I think it was in the second Guardians of the Galaxy, because yeah. the, the character comes back in that movie, too. Yeah, he's a much bigger that. role in the second one, yeah. And, um... A big a big theme of the first movie is that he was like this abusive father to the main character and he was kind of a kind of an asshole. Yeah. And then in the second one they like tried to redeem him by saying, Oh, actually it was He was actually, not, it wasn't was, that bad. He wasn't that bad. He's actually kind of a good father. It's like mm, you kind of like made your child into like kind, a child soldier. Kind, it was kind like of, kind of overplayed your hand in the first one and it's taken mm. a little hard to walk it back. It's yeah. and it's hard for me to take him as this mm-hmm. Blue skinned, cuddly, cuddly yeah. daddy alien guy. Yeah. After I've seen Henry Porter of a Serial yeah, Killer, yeah, Henry Porter of a Serial Killer is a hell of a thing. Like if you, you, this would pigeonhole a lot of people. But mm-hmm. um, 
Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. So fucked up, it was shelved for like half a decade. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I couldn't find it. There was, there was like no market for it. Like, who wants to see this? That's an excellent question. People who like good cinema <laughs> and people with a really high threshold for evil. Mm. Uh, Michael Rooker plays a serial killer named Henry. He is a drifter. He doesn't have family. He doesn't have uh, friends. He just drifts from place to place, murdering people and moving on. Uh, he ends up staying uh, with a brother and sister for a short time, at least he thinks. And he ends up getting enmeshed in their lives more than he intends. Mm. Uh, the sister, uh, who is not happy in her life, her brother doesn't treat her very well, she's been uh, horrifically abused by her parents, uh, Henry is the only person who's kind of treated her okay. So she starts falling in love with him. Mm. Meanwhile, her brother discovers that Henry is a serial killer and he's okay with it. Yeah. And Henry gets a friend for maybe the very first time who has similar interests and they embark on murdering people together. Because they can bond that way. Because they they're not they're not bonding terribly well. There's this one incredibly horrifying sequence where it's a, the, the TV it's a TV sequence. Yeah. So at some point <clears throat> they kill a guy and they like they steal his he has like a home video camera. This mm. is novel technology to them. Um, we see that they are like filming mm. a home invasion, a random family, and they just break into their house and they're performing horrible acts of violence. And we're just watching it. And we think, okay, that's the shot. It's a shot from the home video perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay, how terrifying is that? Oh, my God. And then they do something even worse somehow. Where the camera pulls back a little bit and realize that we're watching this on a TV. Then the camera pulls to the side a little bit. And you see Henry, and I think his name was, I think his name was Otis. I don't brother. remember the character's name. You see yeah. Henry and his friend, who have, who have committed this horrible multiple murder on camera. Sitting there watching the TV, bored. <laughs> watching TV the way that you would watch TV mm. on a Saturday afternoon, and there's nothing good on. I'm not excited so by it, but like yeah. we have nothing else to do on a Saturday afternoon. So sure, I'll watch like not even golf, but like the golf pre-show, and I don't <laughs> even like golf. Like that's the level mm. of interest they have, and what they have done. Oh, they've done the most horrible thing imaginable. Mm. It is the the absolute clearest window into the emptiest human soul I think I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, it's... I have a, a high tolerance for misery. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've established this many times. I love a miserable film, yeah. and and Henry pushes me a little far. Yeah. Uh, it's it's tough to get through. Yeah, it's, it's violent. There are more violent movies out mm. there, but it's got violence in its heart. Yeah. And it, well, it is making a point. It is not just there to be just cruel. It is trying to show you... There's a scene that Michael Ricker has with the, the sister mm. where she opens up to him in a very candid... Uh, very uh, A way that you can tell is very difficult for her. She tells him terrible things that have happened to her. And his... I'm going to ruin it for you. His response is just one sentence, and it's the, it speaks every fucking word mm -hmm. about just how empty he is. Yeah. It's about that emptiness, and oof, it is yeah, the, the least um, romantic version of serial killer I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, 
you and I grew up in the 90s. There was this whole trend of serial killer movies in the 90s oh, yeah. that kind of all, all exist in the wake of The Silence of the Lambs, really. But, yeah, um, there have been some before, uh, but Silence of the Lambs like kicked open the door and like well, kind and of invented was, uh, a new genre. The the type of serial killer dramas were like police procedurals uh, that we grew up with, stuff like mm-hmm. Seven or Along Came yeah. a Spider, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and Copycat. Uh, yeah. um, the Bone Collector, all of those. Yeah. Uh, do you ever see Night Moves? It was like I think it came out like right after Seven uh, with Christopher Lambert, Night with a K. Um, oh, okay. I was thinking. Of, I thought Night Moves was like a Gene Hackman movie. There, there's a movie Night Moves, Night with an N. That's Gene, Gene Hackman. Hackman. Okay, yeah, that's there's another one called Night Moves with a K. I never K, saw the Christopher yeah, Lambert. Film, another one of those serial okay. killer knockoff things where like killers are writing messages in blood and leaving clues and stuff. It's like a Batman story, really. Yeah, basically. Um, I think that's the thing. Silence mm. of the Lambs created the serial killer as like a new form of supervillain. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of movies are very eager to do that because that's, A, you get a whole larger-than-life supervillain, and B, it's cheaper than werewolf yeah. makeup. I, I feel like there's a certain kind of serial killer movie that um, that, that Henry is. Mm-hmm. That's not a police procedural. No. Uh, and you can also put in films like uh, William Lustig's Mania. I, that's the film uh, I think or, of as like, um, the closest approximation to yeah, it. Yeah. Or, uh, uh, or just about anything about a real-life serial killer oh. like Ted Bundy. Um, these are movies about how the world has constructed spaces mm-hmm. for this evil to exist. Yeah. Uh, intentionally or unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of someone like Ted Bundy, uh, it's about how he's a charming guy. Yeah. And that kind of charm opens up doors for him to commit his atrocities. Yeah. Um, in terms of something like Henry or Maniac, it's dingy rooms, poverty, and looking the other way from a large swath of the population mm-hmm. al- allows depravity to be cultivated. Well, it allows him to and, be invisible uh, as he does it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so they can they feel uh, just can murder with impunity and uh, they're permitted to in their minds. Mm -hmm. This is their, what they're allowed to do. And I think Henry more starkly than any American film I've seen Mm. really lays that out. How there are this just, it stripes across America of these little hidden areas, these impoverished spaces where killers can kill and yeah. there's no reason for them not to. Yeah, no one's no one no one in power is looking. Yeah, yeah. no one with money is looking. You'll, you'll notice yeah. a lot of the serial killer films that came after The Silence of the Lambs were about the wealthy being stalked. Oh, yeah, uh, interesting. It, it, yeah, oh, so like? all of a sudden we're we're interested now, aren't we? Oh, better and, and better throw some money notice, at the police yeah, department. No, notice that the detectives are interested in those ones. Mm-hmm. Nobody's interested in Henry and the, the impoverished areas. No, the, the, the idea that the law could catch them mm. kind the, of the, not, doesn't even cross their I, mind. I don't think I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've seen it. I don't even think it gets mentioned. Yeah. It's really not an issue. It's seriously though. If you if you, this is one of the bleakest, most frightening movies I've ever seen. It's not it doesn't yeah. have jump scares. It's just a, a, a absolute. I, I believe it. That's the thing. I hmm. believe that the evil it, it has depicted is plausible. Yeah. And that terrifies the shit out of me. <laughs> uh, well, I do have a horror movie as well. Uh, oh, wow. We have yeah, so many horror movies. Well, I mean, Haunting, House, Hell, yeah. hell. All, all of those are all the H words. All the H words belong in horror movie titles. Yeah, I suppose so. And I'm uh, done with that. I'm done with horror. I'm good. Uh, this you... is my last one. Okay. And I know I, I got plenty of ghosts, and uh, we, we do have to go to hell at some point. So oh. I'm going to do Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. The good Hellraiser. 
Uh, the best Hellraiser. I would say that. Um, yeah. The first one is also good. Yeah. Uh, the third one is a mess. Yeah. Uh, the third one is the American version. The third they, one the is first basically... Two are, are British films. The third one's very American. The third one takes the iconography and just throws it into... Yeah, but what if it was at, like, a rave bar? And mm. what if, like, hell thought CDs were a cool way to kill people and turn well, people into monsters? But, uh... Yeah, it, well, was just, well, it just didn't really track. What bugs me about that third <laughs> movie is that they... Because they track. got there's the yeah. video sent him by the guy gets a video camera shoved in his head. Should, yeah like his yeah. brain is like replaced so by a camera and it's shoved yeah. through his eye. He should, he should have like I thought, I thought you meant like CD track that I too. That was a CD but like joke, either but. way works. I, they should they should have had a bit where like in order to defeat the the video camera Cenobite mm. they like press the eject button and his brain starts <laughs> shooting out. Uh, you know what? They did that in a Venture Brothers episode. No shit. Uh, there was oh, a, a an episode where the the villains all got together. Uh-huh. And they were doing party tricks for each other, and it turns out one of them had, like, a Hellraiser puzzle box. Oh, my God. So, like, he and his girlfriend are, like, skinless, and, and there's a Cenobite there. He's like, I can't figure out this puzzle. He's giggling. He's got, like, meat hooks through him. And there's a, a, a Cenobite in the middle saying things like, oh, submit to your desire, submit to your toast, your pleasure toast. I don't think He's I got, like, t- a toaster face, and his brain comes out of the toaster <laughs> slot. It's pre- Look up pleasure toast at some point. It's pretty hilarious. Uh Okay, so Hellraiser. <laughs> We've been kind of rambling for a bit. Um, Hellraiser, uh, based on the Hellbound Hype Heart by Clive Barker. Clive Barker adapted it to a film in 1987. Um, and it's all about lust. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, Clive Barker had this weird kind of Walt Whitman-esque approach to religion <laughs> where like the body and the soul were one. I guess that's like, Walt, um, I guess that's Walt Whitman, sure. No, there's 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 a parallel. You read them both. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a pretentious way to put it, but sure. Or you can just read books. No, uh, I'll just say it's pretentious and, and save a lot of time. <laughs> fine, fine. <laughs> I'm sure your time is precious. That's why we're here for three hours. Uh, no, uh, but it's it's about uh <laughs> This character is seeking, like, the ultimate sensual experience, yeah. the ultimate sex experience, and yeah. he gets uh, this magical box and unleashes uh, sadomasochists from beyond the grave. That's mm-hmm. how uh, Clive Barker originally pitched it. Yeah, it's not like the and, devil. Uh, He's not there. They're not there to punish you. It's just like, no, you, you, you wanted the ultimate sensational experience. Well... Yeah, we'll, we'll give you that. We will not differentiate between pleasure and pain. Yeah. They, but you'll feel a bunch the, of weird shit. This, this is, yeah, the, the extreme end of things where yeah. pain and pleasure are the same experience. Yeah, like, careful so, what you wish for. So, yeah, get, get kind of ripped apart, and that's, like, the ultimate thing. Uh, his brother come, moves into the house where he died. He bleeds on the floor. There's an amazing birth sequence where he kind of grows <sighs> back out of the floor. That, that and, scene uh, where the skeleton, like, kind of comes up out, out of, of the, nothing. Yeah, yeah. That scene and the scene where the car repairs itself in Christine, I, mm. I don't think visual effects ever got better than that. I, you know what? I'm up, they're, they're up there. Yeah, yeah just that, that damn convincing, scary-looking things. Yeah, um, and and that's like sort of this hot house thing where um, it turns out the skeleton was having an affair with his brother's wife, yeah. and she feeds him men so they can have sex again. And yeah. the Cenobites are their family, etc. Yeah. Uh, it's a very sleazy are, film. It's it's a sleazy film, uh, but I think it works. I think I you know it kind of turns lust into something very kind of universal. So you're saying it's a universal horror film? Yes, it's a universal horror film. Yeah, I hope you mixed in a rim shot. I'm applauding myself. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Okay. Uh, Hellraiser 2, however, I think is uh, 
I think it's a better film. I think it's superlative. It's weird as fuck mm-hmm. it's like super surreal uh clive barker didn't direct it he just produced it it was uh directed by a guy named tony randall not that tony randall should have been uh, that tony randall wouldn't it, that have been something that have been great uh, no that's the, a really odd couple the, the director tony randall uh he, he did some other low budget horror movies he did uh, amityville 1992 oh, which yeah. i think is the sixth movie Whoa. in that series um uh he also did a movie called ticks <laughs> about killer ticks yeah it's, uh, it's it was the prequel to tick tick boom that it was the sequel the tick and then ticks that's that's how okay. that's how it works okay i was thinking about the movie tick tick boom uh hellraiser 2 kind of expands those themes of lust that uh lust is the thing that kind of consumes you pushes you into another realm of experience yeah. and kind of broadens it to obsession in general yeah uh specifically obsession with mystery unsolving things the gordian knot and uh it's telling that Clive Barker actually wrote a short story once about a Gordian knot, about somebody who just became obsessed with untying a rope uh, and like kind of drove them insane. Mm. Uh, so uh, the main one of the main characters now is this guy named Dr. Chunard, and he's obsessed with the box itself, mm. but he's also obsessed with like gore and surgery and the the operations of the human brain mm-hmm. he keeps on saying the the line of dialogue is repeated over again, we have to see, we have to know. And it because we're sort of dealing with obsession itself, we're not content to just sort of stay in a house and feed people blood until they can grow back and have sex. Mm-hmm. You have to explore. So the movie expands into hell, right? Uh, which we didn't see in the first movie. No, it's actually a really glorious uh, uh, sort of explosion of the first film because the first film... The main takeaway everyone has from that first film... It, mm. it, I look at the original Hellraiser the way I look at the first Pink Panther movie, where... Mm. Yeah, it's a good it's like, movie, but the thing that people remember, either Peter Sellers' character or the Cenobites, not as big a part of the film as you might no, recall. The, the Cenobites are actually kind of a minor part, and I think yeah. I like that. Uh, they're not the protagonists. Yeah, or the it's, antagonists, really. They're yeah. kind of, they're just, there's incidental creatures mm-hmm. that are part of like a larger world, and the actual story, you could take the Cenobites out, and the story would be largely the same. It's a supernatural story about a guy coming back from the dead mm-hmm. and his former lover who's now married to his brother killing people to feed his bloodlust and bring his body back so she can fuck him. Like, all of that could work without the Cenobites. You don't mm-hmm. technically need them. But with the Cenobites introduced, it introduces the idea of a larger... Uh, I'm gonna, I would normally find this using this word a little gauche, but I think it actually fits here. Mythology, mythology, yeah. Because I think or world I, building. I, I think, but I think it actually hate, is but, yeah. a world. But I think it's an interesting world. It's not just like, hey, what if there are a few other guys in this story? Like, no, 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 no. Like, there's literally like mm. a whole alternate kind of religion yeah, that is real and has actual like godlike beings mm-hmm. and and intent and so in the, there's, the there's, sequel is all about exploring that properly and they manage to do that without just being nerdy about it they tell another equally great story yeah, about yeah. horror uh, and obsession they, and and pure physical sensation and they and they yeah, expands the mythology of the the first hellraiser movie in a way that feels really organic mm-hmm. I, they look really the same it's like really similar photography for both yeah uh and we get to ner- learn some things like the cenobites were human once and they were transformed and that happens to chenard in the most terrifying possible oh, way God, so the chenard cenobite is a terrifying thing like wh- one of the great movie monsters it, it, it's it's so great that jj abrams ripped it off for uh for star wars 9 
Oh, like yeah. oh, Emperor yeah, Palpatine it. when he's like on that like weird like conveyor belt thing, yeah. like in, like that, that kind of weird pole arm. Mm. That's clearly that's influenced thing. by Doctor Shinar from in, Hellraiser Two. In, in Hellraiser Two, it's not like a mechanical pole arm. It's it's a penis. It's like a yeah. gigantic phallus that's like attached yeah. itself to his head. Yeah. So yeah, if the sexual imagery wasn't obvious enough. To um, think I hesitated. Yeah, no, yeah. He like coming to emerges to think I hesitated, and this so thing goes into his brain. Yeah. Um, I, what I what I love about Hellbound uh, for for me personally, the reason that this movie really connects with me, um, is this is a movie that is trying to put and I'm and on a budget no less, trying to put one of the loftier concepts humanity has ever come up with, the idea of hell mm-hmm. on screen. Something that is difficult to fully imagine, uh, and people have often failed, or they've made it look kind of chintzy, or ah, it's a bunch of flames in a cave, whatever, you know, who cares? Like, there are certain movies that create imagery mm-hmm. that sticks in your head, and now when you think about that thing, you think about this movie. Yeah. When I, when you might, for example, when you think about elves. Mm-hmm. You might think about Orlando Bloom and The Lord of the Rings, if that's oh. what does it for you. If you think about Superman, you might Santa think about Claus. Christopher Reeve. Or you might think about Santa Claus. There's another. <laughs> when, I, when I think about elves, I thought of actually, here's, Rudolph the Red Nose. Actually, Ranger. here's a specific one. It's, uh, a, not a good movie. Incredible production design. When I think about the North Pole and Santa's workshop, I think mm-hmm. about the movie Santa Claus the movie. Oh, yeah. Because they made it look amazing. Okay. That's, I, a, I, and I, that's a movie I haven't seen. I, it's so, not yeah. a good movie, but the production design of the North Pole is genuinely magical. Like, they really went all out. Okay. So that that's actually an example I was thinking of, but I wasn't going to use it because that was a bit oblique. When I think of Hell, I think of Hellraiser 2. Okay. That's what I imagine mm. Hell looks like. Well, and... But that, that's that's the strange thing because it's called Hellraiser, I know. and they refer to the realm as Hell. Yeah, but it's not it's the not Judeo-Christian hell. Yeah. hell. yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's not the Christian Hell that you you know, would read about in Bible stories. It's yeah. because the, the Hell you'd run you know you learned about in Catholic school was punitive. Yeah, uh, it is your punishment for sins committed on Earth. Uh, that's not part of Hellraiser, Hellraiser's mythology mm-hmm. until you get to Hellraiser Five. But um, yeah, and from that point on, it's all Hellraiser it's, is it's, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. It's, it just becomes Completely Christian Hell after point. that. But yeah, yeah in, in the first two Hellraiser movies, at least, it's a, a realm of torture. Yeah, but it's also a realm that's satisfying you. And well, I think the it idea can is even if you have your head in the right place. Yeah, and a lot of people, it's hell. The Doctor Chouinard, for example, mm-hmm. it's heaven. Yeah, and the idea is losing yourself to something, losing your identity to experience is the actual theme of what's going on with the first two Hellraiser movies. And I think that was very important to, to Clive Barker, mm-hmm. this idea that your your physical experience can override your mind, yeah. can sort of be your soul. I think mm-hmm. those are some pretty profound, almost theological ideas yeah. uh, that he's throwing in there uh, from a, a, Barker is a almost profoundly, a new religious experience. Yeah. Barker is a, I, I haven't read a lot of Clive Barker, but I've read mm-hmm. a fair amount of Clive Barker. I've actually I've, probably I've, read more Clive Barker than I've read Stephen King, come to think of it. Uh, well, and, I've, I've, I finished one Stephen King book, and it was oh, wow. It. It took me a summer. Oh, well, uh, yeah, that'll do it. That's a long one. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've read hefty stack of Clive Barker. Yeah, me too. And um, I, I think Clive Barker is a profoundly physical writer in a way that yeah, very yeah. few are. Uh, and it, not in this sort of body horror, like, oh, my, our body is so disgusting kind of way, which what I think some body horror writers or storytellers can sort of 
get stuck in mm-hmm. this idea that our body disgusts us. I think that's something that, weirdly enough, I think all the Alien movies, except for Alien 4, uh-huh. they use sexual imagery, but it's always gross. Yeah. Alien 4 <laughs> is like, yeah, but what if it's also kind of hot? And I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. Thank you, <laughs> Alien 4. Alien Resurrection. But, um... Where was I? Where was I? Where was I going? <laughs> Clive Barker and his Clive Barker, with the body. I, yeah. I think I think there's a profundity to it. Yeah, I think yeah. there is something. It's easy to write him off as a very visceral mm. uh, storyteller, but if you really think about the types of stories that he's telling, when, and again, I think when you look at the hell in Hellraiser two, mm-hmm. um, it is purely based on perception. Again, the Cenobites think they're doing you a favor. Mm. You asked for this, and they're, they're, we like it. They're, we're they're, into this. They're, like, they're, they're just you know, like they're the yeah. ultimate doms. Yeah, and there's no safe word. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. that's kind of, kind of where you are. Exactly, but that, but again, you ask for it, mm. so that's 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 what it, it, it's all about. And I think when in Hellraiser two, we get a better sense of the the sort of the 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 double perspective on that that mm. this is actually pleasant to yeah. a lot of people. And I actually think that depending on what you read about other versions of hell. Perspective is a huge part of it as well. Mm. Well, uh, something I, I learned about, uh, if, if we're looking at hell from like a media studies perspective yeah. and uh, how popular perceptions of hell as they've been depicted in popular media, yeah. uh, what most of the modern Western world thinks mm. of as hell yeah. comes from Dante. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, uh, he just, he, and he made a lot of that shit up. Well, he, uh, it was based on a lot of like mm-hmm. actual religious doctrine, but the idea that he also hell... made a lot of it up. <laughs> no, he absolutely did. Yeah. But uh, the idea that hell is sort of like underground, yeah. that it's sort of the center of the earth, uh, the idea that, and that comes from an, an old religious tradition that, um, people don't even really think of anymore, but that sin, mm-hmm. uh, is something that has weight. It's the mm-hmm. thing that weighs you down. So what would be the most like sinful, torturous place would be down in the middle of the earth yeah. where everything is drawn. Like gra- it's like uh, gravity didn't have a name yet, but even mm-hmm. already he is gravity it would just suck you in. It, yeah. it was, it was the 14th century. Gravity had a name. Um, gravity was already uh, well defined by the 14th century. When did I say didn't do the gravity thing? Well, it was prior to Newton, but you know, th- there was were... point. <laughs> point. We wouldn't have called it the same thing. I suppose not. That's all but, my point. Uh, I'm saying it probably wouldn't have been called the same thing, the, but he was uh, still concerned about the concept. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Dante was an incredibly structured writer, so of course all of his divine realms are structured. You, they you know, are, I don't think things are just floating around and shit before Newton <laughs> found I, an I, apple. I, I know you know, okay. but, but maybe look into the history of science a little bit. Okay. Uh, but yeah, there are these concentric circles that led into hell, and each one had like yeah. d- uh, you know had incre- a increasingly grievous sins, and uh, yeah. something that is part of. Uh, Dante's version of the in, in the Inferno mm-hmm. was that he saw the souls of people who were still alive, uh-huh. uh, that they had already lost their souls. They had to already hell done while something they, yeah. so terrible that their soul was already here, even though their they're, body was still walking around. Yeah, they're they're up there, they're walking around, but they're, they're being tortured. Damned. They're yeah, they're damned on the inside, and yeah. so that that really kind of struck me. And I feel like that's something we don't think about when we think about hell yeah. anymore. That's kind of been lost. I think about and, that. Uh, Here's the thing: I'm, I grew up Catholic enough that I actually do think about that. Okay. That your soul might I, already be in hell. I'm, not, I'm a little, I don't, you know, you, there's, when you grow up Catholic, you always worry a little bit about like, whether you're <laughs> yeah. a bad person or not. But no, there's definitely people I could point to. I'm like, they're probably already in hell. They're already in hell. There's yeah. some really shitty people out there. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and another thing. Um, if you're listening well, and you're worried, it's not you. <laughs> Just so you know, I and, think you're great. <laughs> and and an, another thing from uh, that I learned from Dante is um, 
we talk about sort of the geocentric models of the galaxy or yeah. of the universe and how a lot of early uh, astronomers mm. uh, uh, prior to helio and you know heliocentric models of of the solar system go you know back to mm. you know thousands of years right but a lot of models of the the of the solar system the earth was in the center yeah and a lot of people have taken that to mean that earth is important Exactly. That Earth Earth is yeah. the center of everything, and everything revol- revolves around it. And we even say that, oh, the world, you think everything revolves around you. Yeah. That's the expression we've got. That's a misinterpretation. Yeah. Because of everything sinful is drawn to the center, Earth is actually the lowest point. All of the bad stuff has been drawn into the middle. Oh, interesting. We're, we're, we're on the drain, while everything kind of, cir- all the divine things circle around us above. Ah, so uh, anyway, we're we're off in the weeds we're here. We're off in the think, weeds a little bit. But I, I think, think yeah. but the idea is um, a lot of our perceptions of what constitutes hell actually come from mm. literature and media, right. uh, as well as your various religious doctrines. Uh, I feel like it's really interesting to see that happening in a microcosm with the Hellraiser series, yeah. because they started something. Uh, something kind of new and, and striking and about I, these, this realm of hell. And it turned into something a little bit more traditional yeah. pretty quick. Yeah. No, I hear it. Yeah. Um, well, in any case, I, I'm glad you picked hell about Hellraiser too. Cause I didn't. Okay. Um, I was pretty sure you would, but I knew that this is a movie that I, I'm glad is finally more appreciated than it used to be. It used mm. to be considered there was Hellraiser was the good one. Mm. Hellraiser two was okay, and then mm. all the other ones sucked. And now I think that there are, there are a lot of people who think the Hellraiser two is at least really good, mm. and some like us agree that it's it's the best of the Hellraiser series. Um, you and I have over our our many years together as friends and podcasters and critics. Mm. Uh, championed a variety of films. Yeah, uh, some some easier to champion than others. Other people agree with us, and some we might go a little more overboard than others in our appreciation of the films, not just as entertainment, but as art. And I'm very curious if this film, which I think mm-hmm. you and I have championed as much or more than anyone, mm-hmm. uh, made your list as well, because so far we have no ties. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. It is interesting. I have a couple I'm wondering about might make it. And uh, this one I suspect is on both of our lists. Mm. But I'm, I could be wrong. Hackers? Hackers is not on my list. What? <laughs> I do love Hackers, though. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's Whitney. on my runners-up. Oh, Winnie. Okay, this is a very interesting list. I don't know what is. I don't know what anything means anymore. Uh, hackers. Mm. Hackers. Uh, I think... H- hackers is enjoyable, but it it is... It's a time capsule. It is a time capsule, but I've all, I have other time. Hi, mom is a time capsule as well. I put mm. that on my list too. Well, I don't think a time capsule is inherently a bad thing. We no, talk but, about timelessness as though it's the loftiest thing art can be, and I think art can very much speak to its time. And I think mm. I- acknowledging what was happening very specifically at a certain time is still very illuminating. And we talk a lot in our podcast about how specificity breeds universality. How when you are very specifically about something and you're not trying to just sort of generally connect in a non-specific way, you create such a singular vision that people can really truly connect to it and get something out of it, even if they don't necessarily connect to the specific character, style, tone, plot, whatever. Mm. Um, it's so distinct, it, it sucks you in. I think that's a fair thing to say about Hackers. 
Uh, Hackers is a movie, and I'm pretty sure one of our first Iron Lists, we did the most 90s movies of the 90s or something like that. <laughs> something uh, like that. It, we, it, we it definitely 90s. is one of those things. It is one of the most 90s fucking movies. Uh, it is incredibly music video stylized. Uh, it yeah, is well, full it, of young, it, sexy people mm. giving themselves superhero names because they're hackers and they live outside the law, man. And they well, perform it, acts of anarchy for fun, <laughs> for dating, and then ultimately in order to take down a corrupt corporate system mm. that is trying to uh, basically destroy the environment for financial gain. Yeah. And a bunch of teenagers who, uh, they may be rebels and they may be criminals, but they have principles. Mm-hmm. Our, our last line of defense against a system that is otherwise a, so completely overrun by people who know how it's run and gatekeep how it's run uh, that no one else has the ability to stop anything. And, um, and and this is a very 90s concept. The central villain is one of them who sold out. Yeah. Um, the idea of... Okay, the idea of selling out... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, let's, let's introduce this, shall we? Because there was a time... When selling out was was considered like culturally one of the worst things you could do, well, you like, would have something that you were interested in, an art form that you cared about, a principle that you cared about, yeah. a politic that you cared about, and you would pursue that regardless of whether it brought you uh, financial fa- gain, financial yeah. gain, acclaim. Yeah, the idea uh, was sex uh, appeal. That you, the idea is you yeah, cared about the, a principle. Uh, the the economy uh, was was. Uh, Doing pretty well in the 1990s. Overall, uh, in many ways, yes. And uh, jo- jobs were plentiful. And I think into that environment, uh, the idea that you could just get a high-paying job somewhere, advertising, mm-hmm. which was the, the lowest of the low. You do not enter advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was you. That means you're not doing anything. You're not contributing to the world. You're not making art. You're not yeah. making politics. You're not... You're not driving ide- culture, moving culture yeah. or ideas yeah. forward. You're yeah. just feeding into this uh, slop machine that's trying to suck your dollars out. You could make a lot of money that way, but you have no soul. Yeah. That's selling out. I think uh, I think you're right that it has a lot to do, especially in hackers, mm-hmm. with uh, a very privileged point in American society where yeah, that was yeah. more permissible. However, I well, also believe that that, that that romanticism mm-hmm. also stems from. Uh, Warhol's click in New York. Oh, this idea, it does. like yeah, you know, they, you, you, you can li- you can live for art. Yeah. Exactly, and that and that whether or not you could either be super rich at it, like Andy Warhol, or you could not mm. be, but it is romantic. Yeah, uh, th- yeah, the idea of the suffering artist. Watch Tick Tick Boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, that movie's all about that. There's there's even a selling out sequence where yeah. it goes to work for an advertising That's company. Bet. That's a uh, great bet. I also I'm also a big fan of Basquiat. Basquiat, is a good Basquiat one, with yeah. Jeffrey Wright, excellent film. Uh, uh, but uh, you'll note that in hackers, mm-hmm. those are like those kids are pretty well off. These they're, are like okay. the these kids who are like web, are. rebels and living off on the the fringes. I guess serial killer serial, serial killer is, is, um, is a vagrant. Is, he's, he's, he's constant, have, yeah, yeah. He's sleeping at a, like crashing on people's couch. It's not yeah. expressly stated that he's homeless, but he, he never. It's implied he, that he is. It's, it, I think it's very clearly implied yeah. that he is. Yeah, and uh, but all these kids have this like, you know expensive computer equipment and all these yeah. all these cool fashions that they're. The idea is that they're constructing their look, which was a big thing to do in, in the 1990s. Just go to, or just any time, really. Just go to a thrift store and construct you know, your own fashion. Yeah. Uh, but they like clearly have a lot. Well, they have. They definitely have means. That's true. Yeah. But they're also creating their means. Like they can, mm. they can hack an ATM machine anytime they want it. 
They could yeah. live off the grid if you just had a good laptop. Yeah, and, uh, and they see some things in culture that they uh, disprove of, and they have the wherewithal. Mm-hmm. They have the power to undo it. Uh, yeah. Early in the movie, Johnny Lee Miller, who uh, <laughs> plays Crash Override. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, Originally Zero Cool, but he can't go by Zero Cool anymore. Yeah, Zero Cool got burned, so now he's Crash Crash Override. Override. Uh, He's watching late night TV and he sees a televangelist Uh, who's just talking about sin. He's like, oh, fuck off, televangelists. Televangelists are evil people. So he hacks the TV station. Yeah. And and we get to see, like, they actually has, like, a robot arm pull out a VHS and put it in a thing. Because that that is how it used to work. So he changes the programming on a TV station because he doesn't approve of the political message Hmm. being espoused. There's a great bit uh, at the beginning where he's got a huge crush on Acid Burn, played by Angelina Jolie, uh, and they have an initially uh, very uh, competitive, Antagonist well, it's a competitive to... relationship, right. and uh, th- they get in a bet with each other, and the bet ends with them going on a date either way. He wins no matter what happens. He says, mm. if I win, you wear a dress on my date, and she says, and if I win, so do you, mm. and that's a great bit, and mm. they're they're the competition is to take this guy who has... He's the, F- he's the FBI agent. He's an FBI he's agent. Investigating he's a, cybercrime. He's in charge yeah. of like a cybercrimes task force. And basically, we're going to use our hacking skills to destroy his life. Mm. They cut up his credit cards. Uh, they uh, have him declared legally dead. Yeah, that's really <laughs> like, good. That's a good one, right? Um, they, this, this movie, is, is it really does feel like the more good-natured precursor to Fight Club. Where the idea <laughs> it's, of it's it is Fight Club for kids. It's really, Fight Club yeah. for kids, but it's Fight Club that is that still believes that being on the fringe, acting outside of social norms and of legal norms, uh, can be positive and purely positive, provided that your your ideals are strong. Uh, and watching this, I actually look at this as one of the more. It's kind of a superhero movie in a way. Here are people who are, you know, they're, they're living as vigilantes, they have cool names, they have cool persona, uh, and they are fighting for justice using tools that no one else has. Mm-hmm. And there's, but the difference between hackers and I think the vast majority of most superhero movies, at least, mm-hmm. comics not so much, but movies, uh, is that it's fiercely political. They actually have a perspective, a point. They, they you were, don't, you jo- don't, Joey writes a manifesto. Iron Man doesn't end with Tony Stark taking a, a chainsaw to all of corporate America. Iron no. Man ends with him running corporate America. As well, a superhero, the idea. You know? Well, the the idea of that first movie is yeah. he's going to devote himself to disarmament, but he doesn't, doesn't no. do that but after the, the first. The first second movie. movie begins with the United States government saying, "Hey, he's talking about disarmament, but you are a weapon of mass destruction. Isn't that hypocritical?" And he's like, "No, I'm because I'm cool, yeah. and that's it. That's, that's the whole thing." The, the government actually wasn't kind of wrong on that one, and yet they betrayed. So they completely lost sight of that, and there's that that thing got more corporate. But like. And listen, I like a lot of those Marvel movies, but most of them aren't about principles. They're no. about they're about punching people and doing cool things. And even if they purport to be about more than that, it's a flimsy excuse to get to the fun stuff. Mm. Hackers is a larger than life vigilante hero story that is aggressively stylish, incredibly fun, awesome soundtrack, full of great characters, quotable dialogue, uh, and it's actually 
got a point. It actually is about something. It yeah. is a rallying cry. And I find that more heroic. I find that more inspiring than a lot of the things that are overtly call themselves heroic narratives. Mm. And so even though it is very, very much of the 90s, it came out, it, it's, it's only it's, happening in this microcosm, yeah, or is. maybe in some kind of like fantasy cyberpunk kind of future where you could recreate this vibe. Um, I still think it's great. And you know, I, I, I'm at a point where I could have taken this spot and given it to a more conventionally popular, well-known, mm. uh, classic movie. And I got a couple more that are classic movies. Yeah, I got, I got a couple of those. Uh, yeah, sure. Like, you know, ringers, you might even call them. Uh, but I, I've also come to believe that um, as someone who watches movies, not just for a living, but as, for, as a life... Mm. Um, I think my, 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 my taste can be somewhat trusted. I think if I like hackers this much, there's something to hackers. And I think I've explained why. Yeah. Um, I, I adore hackers. I watched yeah. this movie incessantly in college. Uh, it, uh, I, I love the, the, the weird fashion. I think the characters mm. are very exciting, affable, friendly characters. Yeah. They, they are righteous characters. Um, and they all have different personalities yeah. and different styles. They're, they're, they're kind of cartoonish. They're sure. a little shallow. Uh, the, they're the, also the, teenagers. The, the, so, the, yeah, the dialogue like... is strange. I think Lorraine Bracco, I, I think she's adrift here. Mm. Uh, she plays uh, sort of the, the villain's mall. And she... Well, she plays the guy, person who's running the corporation, but she doesn't actually know what she's doing. And mm. honestly, looking at a lot of the CEOs that we know of now, the more I actually just buy it. <laughs> actually, I think, uh, I think it's actually aging better than me giving it credit for. I, I appreciate the, the cameo by Penn Jillette. He shows up <laughs> as uh, like the basement-dwelling computer yeah. guy. Yeah, he's like, uh, he's like stuck in a basement just monitoring like this really big mainframe computer. I think we got hackers. a hacker. Yeah, yeah, but it's like a fucking blacklight well, room and like all this that, giant that was, keyboard. Uh, something I was going to mention is uh, uh, Ian Softly is the name of the director, and yeah. he um, he needed to find interesting dynamic ways to film computer use because that's not an interesting visual thing. Generally, it's people not. just sitting at a computer typing. Yeah. So uh, he came up with all of these really exciting montages and abstract ways of looking at computer files that made it a lot more MTV, completely unrealistic, but a lot more visually dynamic. Yeah. Uh, and I found that stuff to be really interesting. Um, it's it's not it's not completely deep. The story is not totally interesting. Kind of style is the substance. Yeah. It's it it is about how. Kids have their own style and uh, and screw you, adults. Right. Uh, I think there are better. I think I I don't I can't think of a lot of better versions of it though. Yeah, it, it's it's like uh, just a few years past Nickelodeon in yeah. terms of its maturity level. I, I feel like uh, I feel like there's definitely a spiritual link between hackers mm -hmm. and break into Electric Boogaloo. Like, there's definitely that <laughs> kind of, like, yeah, we have our own style, we have our own cool names, and we're going to stick it to the man well, and try to gonna... stop corporate America from doing shitty things, mm. except in Hackers, it's a little bit more like, yeah, but we also watch Blade Runner a lot. Yeah, you you, you can trace sort of, like, street punk through cyberpunk. I'd, I'd love to see something like Smithereens back-to-back uh, -back with Hackers. Sure. Just to sort of see the, yeah. the evolution of punk from, like, the streets of New York to the computers. Yeah. Um, I, I dig it a lot. I think people ought to watch it, but uh, a, 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 a bit of a caveat because it's kind of a dumb movie as well. I, I think here's the thing: I think dumb or silly movies can also be great. Mm. I think is one is. So, uh, what do you got next? Uh, what do I want to talk about next? I don't I'm, know. I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to talk about House of Hummingbird. 
Oh, uh, this yeah. was a movie that came Pretty out a couple recent, of years yeah. ago. House of Hummingbird was one of the best films of 2018, and uh, it didn't get a lot of attention when it came out. It was one of those rare films that got some coverage when it hit the festival circuit. And this happens a lot with international cinema uh, and in the United States. Yeah. Something uh, will be released in a, at a festival. A lot of outlets will cover it. A lot of newspapers will review it. And then a long time will elapse before it gets a proper release. Mm. And, and the when hype it, has gone down. The hype has gone down. It gets a really small release and the coverage has already happened. Yeah. The same outlets aren't going to go back and re-review the same movie. They're no, they might re-release it. the review, but they're not going to make a big deal out of it. So, uh, so House of Hummingbird came out. Nobody paid attention. Uh, this is a feature film by uh, Bora Kim, a Korean filmmaker. And uh, it's only her second feature, I believe. Hmm. And she uh, tells the story of a teenage girl uh, growing up in 1994. And there was a rather uh, dramatic event in Korea in 1994 when a bridge collapsed. You can look up a, the, the famous bridge collapse right. in, in uh, 1994. And it's uh, the story of this young girl who is growing up in some pretty dire circumstances. She's going to what they call a cram school. It's like you know she's making up for uh, some lost schoolwork. And uh, her life at home is just completely miserable. Her mom and her dad don't really pay much attention to her. And her brother physically abuses her, just beats her up and, mm. and berates her and just treats her like total crap while her parents just don't pay any attention. Uh, she's, she's going to this cram school and she ends up uh, taking uh, special lessons from a teacher. And there's a certain beauty to the relationship she forms with her teacher. Hmm. Uh, her teacher kind of sees that she is an interesting person. She's really intelligent. She's really artistic. She's a very dynamic human being. The world keeps on telling her that she's nothing. Hmm. And her family tells her that she's nothing. Even nature tells her she's nothing. She has a little, uh, in one point in the movie, has like this growth behind her ear that she Ooh. needs to have surgically removed. Ooh. So uh, like even her body is kind of betraying her. And yet, she finds people who look at her. She finds uh, a little bit of this... Uh, visibility for the first time there's also a classmate of hers uh, another young girl who clearly has a crush on her and she's not really sure what to do with that affection because uh she doesn't have a crush back on this young girl yeah and uh something about house of hummingbird really captures something that's really frustrating but also very uh cathartic about the adolescent experience about being young about being adrift in terms of who you are, as what your identity is. Uh, do you want to be an artist? Do you want to be, you know, you have, your head is filled with all of these interests and it can be really isolating. Uh, no matter how much media there is about sort of the adolescent experience, no matter how many friends you, you share this with, you kind of feel sealed off because you're discovering all these things on your own pace and discovering things for the first time. And this character is kind of experiencing that and experiencing how great and also how confusing it all is. And of course it's all going to eventually, you know, her drama will uh, sort of surround the, the, the bridge collapse. Like it, it'll be kind of be defined. That'll be like the button of her, of that year of her life. It ends kind of okay for her, but maybe not 
just life is going to continue, but sometimes the misery stops for a little bit. Yeah. Um, it doesn't it's, sound it's like a, a really, fun film. Well, but it is. It's it's really, really beautiful seeing uh, sort of seeing a struggle you can relate to ah. and seeing how there are moments of joy hiding throughout, mm. even if there's also a heck of a lot of misery going on. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really, really great. It's, it's just on Amazon now. You yeah. can just get it now. Uh, it was really, really hard to find when it first came out. I remember recommending it and nobody could find it. Nobody yeah. saw it in any of the theaters. I think it was playing in like three theaters in the U S yeah. uh, and they were, and they were all in LA. So, uh, and it was, you know, couldn't find it when it came out on home video or you had to pay a lot to get it shipped in from overseas. Now it's just on streaming. You're, a few years later, you can just get it. And yeah. uh, well, I, no I really, really, then, really, yeah. So I, yeah. I really, really want to recommend House of Hummingbird by Bora Kim. Um, it's it's just it's just really, really great. It's really great. I still think about it. Wow. Okay. Well, listen, I've actually never seen that. I don't have much to contribute to it other than <laughs> I guess I gotta see that movie. Watch House of Hummingbird. I uh, should. Yeah. There's. There's a lot of really interesting uh, films coming from um, that that part of the world. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interesting uh, Chinese, Filipino, uh, Japanese, Thai cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the, the stuff that makes it over to the United States, because not a lot of it does. Um, you're finding a generation of filmmakers who are really interested in trying some new interesting things. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's worth finding those films and seeking them out. And another one from the same year was called an elephant sitting still. It's a Chinese film, yeah. uh, which I've talked about endlessly. I love an elephant sitting still. Um, and you've had a lot of people to watch that one and they always say it's great. It is great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, like I know a lot of people who've like emailed us or hmm. tweeted or tweeted at us saying, hmm. I had never heard of this. This doesn't sound like a cup of tea, but Whitney's hmm. talked so much about it. Yeah. that I'm glad I saw it. it <laughs> I'm going to bring it up again. See an elephant sitting still. Um, but it, see, it, it, if, you, if you like that, see house of hummingbird too. Trust, uh, def- definitely see house of hummingbird. Trust um, an elephant sitting still is going to be a, a bit of a tough watch because it's a four hour film. It's, right. it's a long one and it, it is just a litany of misery. It's like a family who are, mm-hmm. are having like the worst days of their lives and their lives are just horrible. Everything's great and miserable. Yeah, but it also and doesn't the, begin with the letter H, so we shouldn't talk no, about it too much. No, no, no. I, I talked about an elephant sitting still when we did our letter E episode. Yeah, if you want to so. hear a lot more about it, you can hear mm-hmm. it there. Uh, but anyway, um, all right, well, my next pick, uh, we're getting into like the, the, just the good, good stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and this is a movie that a lot of people consider to be a classic, and I remember when I finally watched it for the first time. You know, like Some movies get built up a lot, and then you watch them and you go, that was pretty good, and maybe I, I maybe got built up a little much. Like, it couldn't quite live up to the reputation. But when I finally saw Robert Rawson's The Hustler, okay. I was like, this is an amazing motion picture. Like, a truly top-to-bottom, mm-hmm. stunning work that works on a variety of different levels. It's an incredible character piece. It is a brilliant sports movie. It is a bitter noir. Mm-hmm. Um it stars Paul Newman as Fast Eddie. He is a pool shark uh, who has a dream. And his dream uh, is to take down the greatest pool player in the world, a guy named Minnesota Fats, uh, who is a real guy. Uh, he's played in the movie Jackie by Gleason. Jackie Gleason. Yeah. Um, 
Who had, and this was my first exposure to Jackie Gleason. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. Like, okay, you I, didn't, you I, never I saw like the Honeymooners or nothing. I never saw the. I still haven't seen an episode of the Honeymooners. Not even one. Wow. Not, not a single episode. Okay. Um, it, you know what? It's you should watch the episode where they get a TV. If you see only one episode of the Honeymooners, maybe, maybe watch so that. I've, that's that's I've, good historical microcosm. I'll, I'll say this: I've seen the Flintstones, so I've seen the Honeymooners. <laughs> Touche. Anyway, Jackie Gleason's a great actor. Or at least he could be when he wanted to. And he's really, really great in this movie. Uh, the The Hustler opens... You, you would think it would end with Fast Eddie finally meeting Minnesota Fats. It opens with him meeting Minnesota Fats and playing Minnesota Fats and playing him for like 30 hours hmm. to like a standstill. And it, for a while, it looks like Fast Eddie, who's young and inspired and passionate and cocky and sexy because he's Paul Newman... Like, it's going well for him. He's up, like, I don't know, like $20,000 in the 60s. He's got it made. And Minnesota Fats ends up taking him for all he's worth anyway because, unlike Fast Eddie, Minnesota Fats has maturity and character. Mm. And he's able to basically turn the tables on him uh, as much psychologically as anything. Uh, Fast Eddie, not humbled... But down <laughs> tries to build himself back up again. He ends up in a relationship with a very wounded woman named Pipe, uh, played by Piper Laurie, uh, and uh, finds himself. Yeah, Piper Laurie. Yeah. What? I, I I had forgotten Piper Laurie. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing yeah. in this movie. Um, and uh, he gets himself like a really seedy, gross agent played by George C. Scott, who gets him into like more high stakes games, but also gets him into serious trouble. And he has an opportunity to find that maturity and that happiness that could even make him a better pool player because there there's something that I've I've learned and I've learned a lot of this from my partner in Lapis da Silva uh, where self-care is actually really important to the artistic process a lot of people romanticize we just talked about romanticize the the starving author mm -hmm. the, Str the struggling struggle, yeah. the struggling artist yeah uh, and a lot of great art has come from that, but it that's not where it comes from. That's your life. And actually, like, taking care of yourself and actually uh, growing and maturing as a person can lead mm. to great art being made. And it will also infuse your art with what you have learned in your life, which will make it more potent and powerful. At least that's the theory. Fast Eddie has many opportunities to learn that lesson, and he refuses to do it. It is a very downbeat, very, very earnest, and I would say it's, it feels like a very honest film about someone who's letting their pursuit of greatness keep them from being great until mm -hmm. it's too late. Uh, and now maybe they're great, but who gives a shit is kind of where we're at. Uh... Amazing motion picture. I haven't seen the sequel, uh, The Color of Money, in a really long time. Uh, Martin Scorsese directed it. It's the one where Paul Newman uh, starts training Tom Cruise. Like Tom Cruise takes the Paul Newman role, and yeah. Paul Newman takes the Jackie Gleason role. Yeah, basically. Um, it's a good movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I, I can't speak to it in, to, uh, in a lot of clarity. Uh, but uh, and, and Paul Newman won an Oscar for that. And I think it's because he should have won for this. They're like, well, we have a chance uh, to, to write that wrong. Uh, if you've never seen The Hustler, see The Hustler. It is an incredible motion picture on every single level. Mm -hmm. uh, I love it to pieces. Uh, I think it's one of the great sports movies. It's one of my favorite character pieces. Mm -hmm. It's a great acting showcase. It's stylish as all hell. 
um, and it's got like some some real thought has gone into it too. It's a really excellent motion picture. Yeah, I, I like the Hustler. Okay. Um, Less than a, I do. It's, well, it's it's been a while since I've seen it. I think uh, I think I saw it in like my early twenties. So it's uh, uh, it, it hasn't receded from me, but maybe I wasn't as blown away with it as I might have been. Mm-hmm. I, I saw it as just sort of like a, a, a good sports drama mm-hmm. more than anything. And I, I I do like you know I like the Paul Newman character. Yeah. Um, I reckon if you get a chance, I recommend watching it again. I think you'll appreciate just how how, yeah. how striking it is. Yeah. Um, okay, we've only got three left apiece. Three left. Okay. Um, and still no ties. Uh, I, I'm a talk. Uh, this is one I know you didn't pick. Um, oh God. Uh, because I'm a big fan of Alan Rene. I like uh-huh. Last Mary and Marion Bad, and I'm I love like, Last Mary and Marion Bad. Yeah, Last Mary and Marion Bad is good, but uh, j- just as good, just as interesting, anyway, uh-huh. just as worthy of discussion as Hiroshima Mon Amour. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not a huge fan of this. I, I get this is a movie that I get uh-huh. more than I like. Uh, well, I get it, but I, I've never really connected to it deeply. I, the first time I watched it, um, I watched it with a friend of mine, and. Something we said while we were watching it is, even if this movie were in German, we'd know it was French. Uh, <laughs> when people like, make it, it fun is, of it French is a cinema, like it, French. When, when like Animaniacs would make fun of French cinema, uh, this is the French they, cinema they, they, they were, were making. Specifically, fun of. making fun of Hiroshima. It's sad people like in a room together or walking down the street together, talking to each other about really important things, but that don't very do, abstract. Very way, abstract yeah. doesn't actually connect to their current experience, and they don't always make eye contact. Like, mm. and it's in black and white. Mm. That's the joke uh, of French art house cinema is Hiroshima comes from Mono Hiroshima But Hiroshima Mono is great. It's just yeah. it just it was such a it's it, it's such a distinctly crafted motion picture that it's very easy to parody. Yeah. Uh, you you see yeah, you see parody of like uh, international cinema and it's yeah. either making fun of Hiroshima Monomore, the Seventh Seal, or Eight and a Half. Like th- those are the three that mm-hmm. they keep coming back to in terms of like parody. Yeah. Um or um, no, I guess that is the three. Never yeah, those, those, that, yeah, that's kind of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hiroshima Monomore is about a, a French woman and a Japanese man, and they're they they're having a one night stand. But you don't really know that until like maybe halfway through the movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of just these abstract close ups of people's backs, and then uh, it's intercut with a lot of flashback footage of uh, the Hiro- Hiroshima uh, bombing. The movie yeah. was made in 1959. So one of the films of one of the early films of the French New Wave, and uh, it through all of these conversations, we do do learn some like concrete things about the mm-hmm. characters. We learn that uh, the man is an architect. We learn that the woman mm-hmm. uh, previously was going to run off with a German soldier, but right. he was killed. And uh, uh, she's French and he's Japanese, which is very uh, yeah, key yeah. For as well. Yeah, and. Uh, we don't really learn what their names are. Yep. Uh, she calls herself Nevers, which is a city in France, uh, but it's also N E V E R S. So if you speak English, it kind of takes it's a, on a it's separate a meaning. It's a yeah. double meaning, yeah. Uh, and he, he eventually says that his name is Hiroshima. Uh, Alan Rene is clearly playing with memory. That's something he did with last year at Marinbad as oh, well. Or did he, yeah. Uh, last year, Marion Bad is a little bit more like clearly dreamlike in terms of its memory. It's if actually you can pretty be clearly ambiguous. I think yeah. that's Hiroshima Monomore because it's completely mm. ambiguous in a lot of ways. In fact, whether or not anything actually happens in a movie is still up for some debate. Mm. But it's clearly supposed to be that. Yeah, so uh, it's kind of weird. But yeah, people it, so. people come down on Alan Rene for being like really oblique because his films tend to be mm. pretty dreamlike. But you know what's going on in a given moment. Mm. Uh, maybe not in maybe terms not of. Marianne Bad. <laughs> 
Maybe not well, necessarily always Mary and Bad. Well, Mary and but Mary and Bad, you know who the characters are, you know their relationships. I know to some one people another, who, you know, who lose track of Mary and Bad. I'm just gonna say Mary and Bad might not be the ideal example here. I but Hiroshima Monomore is definitely I, I clear think, about what's going on. I, I think if you're like 19 and yeah. just discovering international cinema, dive into Last Year of Mary and Bad. Yeah. It will very much reward. Oh, you. it's great. If you love uh, and if you love if you love shit like David Lynch, if you love mm. shit like the back rooms. Mm. Watch Last Year Mary and Bad. I think, Mary. Be, I think be, um, you'll be stunned by it. Hiroshima Monomore is a little less accessible. Um, but it was if, named Last Year Mary and Bad, so that I could have picked it. <laughs> uh, but uh, Alan Renee is taking these ideas of memory, yeah. and he's not just sort of walking you through a human mind. He's not just sort of uh, examining how our brains work and how time actually isn't linear when you sort of apply it to memory. He's also mixing in. Uh, how the outside world leaks into our memories and affects us depending on sort of the drama of the outside world. Mm -hmm. So for him, love and memory and sex and war Mm -hmm. are all the same. Yeah. And they kind of blend together in this really very relatable, believable kind of a way, but also in a way that is probably unhealthy and it's just sort of a way that's showing a, yet another way hmm. how mass destruction of the planet hmm. brought about by war is affecting our consciousness mm-hmm. and also the decisions that we make within that system yeah. i mean she is very ashamed yeah of yeah. the this story of her and the the german soldier hmm. uh and you know it's it's partly it's about this sort of changing landscape but it is also just in a very pure, simple way, mm. a character study of people who went through a lot in World War II, yeah. and even you know, and 15, year, well and 15 years that, later, yeah. are still mm. completely altered by that experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that, that's the thing. His, it, it works story, on both levels. And, yeah, and his story is um, he was consigned to the military, and he was uh, out of the. Co- I, either out of the country or just away from Hiroshima yeah. when the bomb was dropped. Yeah, narrowly avoided it. So, uh, and he lost his family in, yeah. in the blast. So uh, he's sort of dealing with that trauma and that guilt, and that's also being mixed in with this affair that they've had. Yeah. So uh, it's about humans trying to do human things, and yet the most inhuman thing of all, war, is sort of tearing into that. Yeah. Uh, there's, here's the thing about it, it's it's more like an essay yeah. I think than it is like a drama and that's why I think a lot of people might have a little trouble with Hiroshima. Th- this is the reason again I respect the shit out of this movie and I uh. admire this movie. It's incredibly well crafted. But on a personal level, just as a person, you know, mm. like movies are trying to connect with you in a variety of different ways, uh, emotionally and intellectually, are the, probably the big two, but not the not exclusive. Hell, um, some movies are trying to get you physically, aren't they? Mm. But um, Hiroshima Monomore is an interesting example of a movie that I am intellectually interested in, but even though it is a a story of powerful emotions Mm -hmm. and even though it's not the central focus, a love affair, Mm -hmm. um, the actual human connection between the characters is so strained. It's like like they connected to each other because they couldn't. Mm. Uh, that there's something about me that, that leaves me feeling disconnected from them. Yeah, well, you know? well, that's that's a big thing with the movie. Unfortunately, it is, is just, that I mean, that kind of alienation. Look, I get, I get it. it yeah. I get it. But it leaves me. I, I, maybe it does too good a job. It leaves me feeling such at a distance mm. that I don't feel like I truly 
connect with the material so much as I stand on the sidelines and appreciate it, and that's what keeps um, it off of these lists for me. uh, I I found just as as I've gotten older, the you know the kinds of things I respond to and the kinds of movies I respond to, and I, I. tend to be drawn toward things that are really are kind of cerebral and things that are a little bit more intellectual as opposed to emotional. I can be. Uh, and I, if, it, if the movie doesn't offer anything emotional within that cerebral shit, mm-hmm. then I don't need it. But yeah. here it is... I, I don't know. It's like there are other movies... You need movies, a little bit of both, right? There, there yeah. are other movies that manage... I'm not going to say they're necessarily better than Hiroshima Mona Moore, even though they're, they're good, but like there are other movies that have done this whole... You know, we were ships that met in the night mm. kind of thing. But yeah, Brief Encounter, that kind of thing. A brief Encounter is... I, I actually haven't seen that one, but uh, 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 a movie I was thinking of was uh, Columbus with John oh, Cho, yeah. uh, which is a guy... It's a really good movie, Columbus. Amazing movie. Uh, you know, guy goes back uh, to his hometown because his father, is, I think, just died, and he ends up connecting with a, a younger woman who is very interested in the local architecture, and they end up walking around the town talking about local architecture... Mm. and kind of flirting with the idea that they might fall in love, but they probably won't. And what they really are pondering is the way that our spaces affect us and change us and the power Mm. that architecture has as an art form. And that one, I feel like, it just as an example, uh, it's about their relationship and it's not, much like Hiroshima Mona Moore, but the relationship is, there's more connective tissue for me to actually really latch on to and like connect to them on a personal level than I can. And maybe it's just I haven't experienced the kind of horror that those characters have and maybe that makes me fortunate, but mm-hmm. it, I also feel like it makes me miss out on the movie a little bit. Um, so That's fair, and, and yeah. your, your view is actually uh, quite a common one when yeah. dealing with the, this this movie in particular. I, I'm, I'm nothing if not common. Mm. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but no, but again, you know, we, That's we why I wasn't, wasn't meant to be an insult. I know, I know. I was, I was. I, I, I too often do I use self deprecation as as uh, for humor, and I need to stop doing that. But um, anyway, yeah, I appreciate it. I just I've I've never truly fallen in love with the film, but uh, mm. you know, I owe it a rewatch. It's been a while. Um, I I, I have no segue. This just completely right. different movie. But I love this movie to pieces. Uh, it is one of my favorite movies from one of the most reliable para filmmakers uh, wh- who's ever worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've done like one dud in like their whole career, and they've been pretty prolific. Uh, it is a movie that often doesn't get a lot of celebration within their career. And yet it is a movie that never fails to dazzle me with its inventiveness, with its uh, visual panache. Uh, and with its absolute love affair with a type of filmmaking and comedy that is sadly largely dead, and that is the Coen Brothers is the Hudsucker Proxy. Okay. I love the Hudsucker Proxy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I, I need caffeine to get through the Hudsucker Proxy. Really? That, I feel like it's an espresso it's, shot of a movie. Well, th- that's the point. I need something to keep up. <laughs> It, it's moving so it's like so yeah. frenetic. I get a little breathless it, after it, a while. It's like it's like the Coen Brothers watched like His Girl Friday, and it was like this is pretty good. But what if they talked faster? What? what <laughs> can we can we flip this thing up to forty five and yeah. just have it run real real fast? It, it's uh, it, it, it takes place uh, in sort of the mid twentieth century. I think it's like the early fifties, uh, and uh, it stars Tim Robbins uh, as a guy who uh, signs up at the very bottom rung in the mailroom. At a big company called Hudsucker Industries. 
Hudsucker Industries, the day he decides to uh, uh, enlist, uh, loses uh, its CEO, wearing mm-hmm. Hudsucker, because uh, he throws himself off the top of the building. Mm-hmm. And they're immediately making jokes about it. They're immediately like, there's, just there's, like, there's, we there's, just gotta... there's no sadness in I this think, world. And weirdly <laughs> enough, this one has Paul Newman in it as well. And Paul Newman is like, oh, just there right. smoking a stogie, and it was just like, well, gotta find a new one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, the, but the thing is, is that they're concerned that with wearing Hudsucker now dead... Mm. Uh, they're going to lose the company. Yeah. So their plan is to, instead of just putting the next in line as the CEO, they're going to pick a rube. Mm. A they're pa- going to pick a, a patsy, a, a, patsy, a, 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 a schmo, you know. A, 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 a rube, a poe, a schmo, a patsy. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll stick my Pulitzer Prize on it. Yeah. Basically, they're going to try to put someone as, in the position of CEO so that they will fail. So that they will make bad decisions and drive down the price of their stock so that all of the fat cats who are currently running the place, actually running the place, can buy up the stock and then build the company back up the way they wanted to. And they end up enlisting Tim Robbins because he seems like a, a, a not very intelligent person. When they ask him, like, do you have any ideas for this company? Mm. He holds up a picture of a circle mm. and says, you know, for kids. And they assume he's stupid. Yeah. So they make him the CEO. And what they don't realize is that he has invented the hula hoop. And Which, it becomes yeah. a huge sensation, a pop culture sensation. It sells like nothing but doing. It changes the entire toy economy. And he becomes the biggest thing. And now they're stuck with him. Meanwhile, Jennifer Jason Lee plays basically Lois Lane mm. as she is trying to infiltrate this company and try to prove what a what a what a fool Tim Robbins is and what a huge conspiracy this is. Uh, it is the perfect marriage of the rapid fire ratatat Preston Sturges school of comedy mm. with a very uh, naive uh, but charming and optimistic Frank Capra. But the, the naive do-gooders are exactly who we need to, to make this world, this country, this capitalist machine work mm. and function properly. I, uh, it's difficult to watch this movie and not think that it's also sending up those things. Oh, it totally is. The, the, it's it's the, better the Co- to do both. The, the, the Coens are, are deeply cynical filmmakers. They are. Uh, and they have very little uh, little faith in humanity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. They, the, and, this is, and again, we talk about this when we talk about Frank Capra a mm. lot, too. The beauty of Capra, everyone always thinks of Capra uh, as this like sort of cockeyed optimist who thinks that America is, gee, Willikers, wonderful. Mm. If you actually watch Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, if you actually watch It's a Wonderful Life, if you actually watch the, most of his movies, you'll mm. find that he believes that, but he also believes that those are flowers growing out of huge piles of shit. Yeah. yeah. That the country is deeply fucked. It's full of corrupt people, of bad actors. Of uh, fools and villains, uh, and that the system works just well enough that if you try really, really hard and if you're really, really smart, you can work, but it will feel like a miracle when you do. <laughs> and that's what I love about the Hudsucker Proxy is that, that Coen Brothers version of cynicism, and it's filtered through Sam Raimi's whirling gig sensibilities too. He's got a, a co writing credit. Um, yeah, they, and they they lived together. Yeah, they worked Sam, together. Sam Raimi and the Coens, and yeah. Holly Hunter lived in with them for a little bit. I think. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I think Francis, Francis McDormand, McDormand did too, also yeah. is living there. Yeah, yeah, like they were they were very very tight knit. Joel Cohen was one of the editors on uh, I think Evil Dead One, um, but uh, that cynicism, that very pronounced Cohen brother cynicism, eventually does give way to earnestness. Uh, I think Tim Robbins is incredibly funny here. I'm, I think I'm not sure it Jason, doesn't. Like I feel like it does. Here, no, yeah. I feel like it does. I feel like it's it's a small amount, but it's earned. The bit at the end where I'm not going to ruin it, but where mm. Tim Robbins is at his absolute lowest point and decides to do something terrible, and the way that they all of a sudden decide to go full Frank Capra fairy tale. Mm. And the exact way that they decide to do it is super intense and nightmarish, <laughs> and also incredibly triumphant and happy. Yeah. And you know what? I love it. Okay. I think it works. I think this is one of their more underrated films. There are a lot of people who enjoy watching it. I genuinely think this is, and, and again, the Coen Brothers have made a lot of classics. Mm. Like it, if you look back, like you can point. Okay, *Intolerable Cruelty* isn't very good. <laughs> you know, uh, *Lady Killers* isn't very good. There's a few that aren't very good, or are, or maybe one or two that are very bad. The vast majority of their films are good to classic, and a lot of them are on classic territory. Mm. And I think this is one of them, and I think it is one that doesn't get enough appreciation. Okay. So if you have any affection for those older films, or if you've never even experienced those, this could be a good gateway. So you can just see how just enthusiastic and exciting and intense that style could be. Like we mm. we tend to look at uh, the old screwball comedy, rapid fire dialogue uh, kind of genre uh, when we watch those movies. You know, when we're young, we're used to movies kind of looking and feeling like modern motion pictures and having just a camera kind of static while characters wander around through it, saying witty things might not grab your attention the way. You're used to when you're young. And to see that filtered through this like incredibly dynamic photography and rapid fire editing and realizing like all of that energy that we no longer really have in our comedies uh, still works today. You just have to adjust the telling to modern sensibility. And with a little luck, once you get used to that and you realize how exciting the dialogue can be once you've filtered it through this, you can remove that filter and just watch the older movies. Yeah. So I would actually use this as a gateway to watch older films as okay. well. So that's a, it's a bonus. It's not the reason it's on the list, yeah. but I think it's a bonus. Uh, all right. My, all right. Last, uh, my last two are like, once again, I, I'm yeah. struggling even now to decide which one's <laughs> my number one. What's your, uh, what's your uh, second to last I pick? I guess my second to last pick... Um, uh, I'm I'm really fond of the Holy Mountain, uh, oh, okay. the, the the Alejandro Jodorowsky movie. Yeah. Um, Jodorowsky has said in interviews that he wanted uh, people to use his movies the same way you might use acid. Right. Uh, he deliberately tried to make them feel like acid trips, and he took acid. And he was actually very fond of it uh, as sort no, of really. Well, actually, um, it wasn't until much later. Like he had already made mm. the Holy Mountain and a couple of these other movies before he took acid for the first time. Oh, okay. Uh, just he was very interested in poetry. He was very interested in spirituality. He was very interested in a lot of symbols that were just leaking through a lot of uh, culture and just threw it all together in the holy mountain it came out in 1973 uh the i think it was uh, was it george harrison john lennon one of the beatles was very very fond i was of, thinking of john lennon uh, john lennon yeah it was yeah. A really talked up uh, holy mountain 
Jodorowsky was already a bit of, uh, of an icon thanks to El Topo. Uh, not his first feature film, but it, uh, it, it was... was a breakout. Yeah, kind of the big breakout movie because it was the first midnight movie ever. The idea, as we've come to know it. As we've come to know a midnight. Yeah, they used to the show I- movies at midnight, but it's not the same thing. Uh, well, the, there's also, there were also like all night movie houses and all the rest, but, um, the idea of going to a movie specifically at midnight mm. to see something a little bit off the beaten path to see began, something weird uh, began with El Topo, yeah. um, theater owner in New York got this movie and it, it's this bizarre acid Western from 1971, yeah. a weird spiritual journey about a gunslinger, but all of the, the gunslingers he has to fight against aren't gunslingers. They're like spiritual masters. Yeah. There's all this weird symbolism in the movie. Uh, yeah. He ends up becoming a monk and puts down the gun. Yeah. Uh, the owner of the theater didn't know what to do with that movie. They showed yeah, it during he, the days. Nobody was going to see Who's going to go to that thing. as a matinee? Yeah. Uh, and, and he had two ideas. It's like, well, if I put this on after hours, maybe I can say it's like kind of a nightmare. And also, and this was key. He let people smoke in the theater. Uh, not just whatever smoke. they want. Yeah, everyone. That, <laughs> there was a time when you could just smoke cigarettes in a movie theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it really was common. Weird. The theaters all smelled the it was same. Like, it would smell the same. They were full of smoke, and it was, it was kind of weird. If you've ever you been see, in like, a theater, s- the specks of smoke yeah. up in the projecting if light. If you've ever been in a theater where people were allowed to smoke whatever they were smoking, uh, it adds a, a weird texture to the experience. The uh-huh. movie takes on a little bit more dimensionality. I'm not saying it's better. But it is different. It's something we recall, anyway, with fun. It is different, yeah. It's very, very weird. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, Jodorowsky came back with something even bigger than El Topo. Right. And he uh, he told this bizarre... I can only kind of describe the events, but it's about this Christ-like figure who wanders through the, uh, a corrupt city where uh, just everything is horrible and... Uh, they've all devoted themselves to either money, which they're not getting, so there's a lot of poverty, mm-hmm. and also uh, idols. There's a lot of idol worship down there. And he ends up getting on this gigantic fish hook uh, that is dangling down from a gigantic tower in the middle of town. He rides it up inside. And, uh, oh, excuse me, but I forgot the bit where he falls asleep uh, on a on a cross, oh, like, yeah. posing like a crucifix. Yeah, like you do. And they cover, coat him with plaster, and they like, sort of recreate his body and mass cell spirituality. Big symbol there. Yeah. But yeah, he goes up into this tower, and he meets a spiritual master on the inside in this long rainbow corridor that's like somehow interdimensional travel. And uh, that's Jodorowsky. He's playing, uh, playing the spiritual master himself. Mm-hmm. And in the top of this tower, this Christ-like figure is invited to join... The messiahs of all of the planets, and they all tell like these their own stories of the kinds of deities they are and the kinds of things they worship back on their home planets. Mm-hmm. So there's this big seg- uh, segment of the movie where there's sort of getting to know what the the solar system is like, and mm-hmm. you know what they in on one they worship technology, and they've invented sex robots, and another one they've invented new kinds of. Uh, apartment buildings that look just like coffins. Mm. Uh, on the war planet, they've invented uh, weapons of war that are fashioned after things like menorahs and crucifixes. Uh, it's all pretty heavy-handed symbol- symbolism. Mm. Uh, Jesus poops into a jar, and they use alchemy to turn it into gold. There's another good symbol for you. Yeah. Uh, and Subtle. then they and then they all uh, sort of rid themselves <laughs> of their bodily beliefs, and they go out and try to find a higher spiritual meaning. And then it ends in a, in a really sort of cool. Uh, Big reveal at the end of the movie. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Uh, just two hours of being beaten in the brain. 
with all these gorgeous yeah, images with, with a twist of lemon um <laughs> it is it's 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 yeah. it's a pan galactic gargle bastard in cinematic form yeah that's that's it's, a very good way to put it yeah, uh, and, and it's but it's also very playful. Uh, Jodorowsky has a very strange sense of humor, so he's telling a lot of uh, you know the idea that Christ is pooping in a jar and they're turning it into gold. That's uh, a bit of a slapstick moment, but yeah. at the same time, he's very earnestly interested in exploring this kind of spiritual symbolism. Yeah. Uh, it's not done for in this kind of adolescent way. It's done in a very yeah. philosophical, very. Uh, contemplative kind of yeah, a way. I, it's and that I, I deeply appreciate. I, I think about something like uh, Holy Man, which I've only seen once. Uh-huh. And it, it's one of those movies where you're not entirely sure you didn't dream it afterwards. Right. It's just so it's just so surreal. Yeah, don't watch it on drugs. Watch oh, it completely. Exactly. The yeah. movie will supply the drugs. You yeah. do not need drugs. <laughs> the movie's doing all the heavy yeah, lifting you, for you. You're good. Um, but I think about a movie like Holy Mountain and just how overt it is and how uh it may, it may blunt its satire mm. is uh and its symbolism is and i think about weirdly enough the movie i think about from like contemporarily is mike judge's idiocracy and oh, the reason okay. why is because idiocracy is a movie I mean, there's, that there's is, an idiocracy kind of sequence in holy Mountain. there is but yeah. idiocracy is i like idiocracy a lot but like idiocracy is a film about uh in the future uh People's the average human intelligence has dropped dramatically, yeah. and the world is now run entirely by fools. And you're supposed to look at this and go, "Well, it's not really that different from the things are now, or like yeah. we're only just around the corner from it." That kind of thing. Mm. Uh, but the thing it's, is, it's referenced a lot because it, it was, yeah, it feels prescient. It, it feels prescient. I'm not entirely sure it is, though. I think it's mm. it's it's in many respects, um, it's it's a smart way. To present foolish humor. Yeah. I, I think uh, it makes one point very quickly, and then it milks it for the majority of the film. So a lot of it is just a big, like, yeah. dumb guy joke. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? It's funny. Mm-hmm. I, I like it a lot, but I don't see it as having... It has something to say. I don't think it has a lot to say. And when mm-hmm. I think about a lot of the movies that come out now, there are some movies that have something to say, but they don't have a lot to say. They don't have a lot to explore. They don't have an entire conversation they want to have with you. They have a point, and they want to present you with that point, and then they want you gone. Holy Mountain is an entire, long, sprawling, interesting conversation. Mm. For better and worse. About many, many things. About many, many things. Some of them we won't get. (laughs) Some of them you didn't do the reading. Um, If you know a lot about various religious practices and sure. myst- and mysticism it'll help oh yeah it'll definitely help it'll certainly it'll give you uh something to start with at the very least you know like the base a basic primer it's like uh when david lynch's dune came out mm. they had to give audiences <laughs> a glossary yeah, yeah. just so they could follow the vocabulary which is not a great way to start a giant blockbuster film where you're trying to make your money back <laughs> it's not it's a bad start um I find Jodorowsky difficult to recommend in some regards. There's definitely a group of people who will appreciate it, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's also very much not for everybody. And as a result, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not downgrading its greatness. I'm just saying there are definitely film goers who are watching things in good faith Mm. and have taste and are going to watch this and go, 
this was not made for me. This was made for uh, other people I, to enjoy, and they can enjoy that, but I don't know if I'm the audience uh, for this. I, I would hang that warning on something like Hiroshima Mon Amour, because that's mm. a very oblique film. Mm. I, I feel like... Uh, Holy Mountain is actually very colorful and exciting to watch. It's very dynamic. Jodorowsky has a good... That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about their style. But Jodorowsky kind of... He knows how to assemble a a feature film. It's actually paced really well. It's really watchable. Oh, I'm not saying it's not watchable. I'm just saying I don't know if everyone wants to really deal with what it's throwing down. Maybe not. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. But at the same time... Why not? Uh, why, why can't films be that ambitious? Why can't, I, I, I like yeah. it. I'm not decrying it. I'm just saying I, th- I, I worry sometimes we'll recommend Holy Mountain and people mm-hmm. will be like, I don't know if I'll ever be ready for that film. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah, just, I'm, yeah. I'm letting you off the hook. All if right. you watch it and you're and you're just sort of baffled by it. I'm going to let you off the hook is what I'm saying. Okay. It's not, uh, it, it, but it is a, a big old daring piece of weird and it's it, it, it's yeah, yeah even if you don't understand the symbolism yeah you'll at least be thrilled by the images because mm-hmm. there there's nothing like it yeah. uh even jodorowsky's other movies don't look quite like this one yeah. um jodorowsky made a couple movies that uh, are just as, as far as i'm concerned just masterpieces i love el topo uh, i think holy mountain is the best one mm-hmm. um a lot of people go to Santa Sangre as sort of his most accessible one because it's essentially a riff on Psycho. Yeah, I've never really... seen Santa Sangre. You'd like Santa Sangre. I'll bet I would. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, there's there's something very concrete happening in Santa Sangre. You yeah. understand like a a through line, like an actual story, and the way characters mm-hmm. grow. It's a lot more conventional than a, a lot of his other. You're saying movies. I only like conventional films. Pardon? You're saying I only like. No, I'm just saying films. it's more accessible. That's all. Yeah, I'm um, saying I only like accessible films. Uh, you you can you're you're not putting any words in my mouth here. You're just sort of confessing whatever you want. <laughs> oh, uh, but uh, <laughs> after all these years, the truth finally comes out. <laughs> I'm basic. Uh, oh, what, what, what was I recommending here a second ago? Uh, I was recommending a Hellraiser two, and yeah, but I recommended uh, Hackers. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> recommended a, a William Castle movie. Yeah. Um, no, but I think... Oh, what was I about to say? Uh, you were talking... It's getting about, a little late. I'm it's okay. losing my trains of thought here. No, you were talking about Santa Sagre. You were talking about... Oh, um, yeah. and he did two... His two most recent movies, yeah. uh, which are autobiographical. He did one called uh, The Dance of Reality, which is about his childhood. And he made one called uh, Endless Poetry, which is about his 20s. Yeah. Uh, Dance of Reality is very political. It's about his family life, how he's sort of facing a, a lot of sort of his influences. And Jodorowsky appears as his old self. He's in his 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's in his 90s now. Right, um, I think so, yeah. Sort of talking to his childhood self and kind of giving a lot of uh, of advice. But everything's told in this very abstract way, sort of in the way he remembered it. Like he remembered his mother singing a lot. So in the movie, mm-hmm. his mother is an opera singer who sings all of her dialogue. Yeah, he has no spoken thing. lines, only singing, uh, yeah. Endless Poetry is one of those infuriating films about a man who devotes himself to art and just does it. Mm. Um, You know, when you're in college, you have that kind of, that optimism that you are nothing but potential energy and you can devote yourself to art. And not everybody does. Everybody has to eventually just sort of go out in the world and get a job. Uh, Jodorowsky set out to devote his life to art and did. And you kind of hate him for it. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to be a poet. I'm going to write poetry and make art and make films. And okay, what are you doing now? That. (laughs) (laughs) Like I've been doing for the last 70 years and it's been successful and it worked for me. It's like, fuck you. (laughs) 
and it's all very particular and weird, and I never had to sell out. Yeah, not for yeah. a second. No. <laughs> Just did it the way he wanted to do yeah. it, and it worked for him. So it's all, those are all excellent movies. I recommend yeah. all of those. Fair enough. All right, uh, so I got two left. As far as I'm concerned, these are probably the two greatest movies on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, they're kind of apples and oranges. They're very different films. My number two and my number one are basically a tie. I suspect mm. one of them might be your number one, but we'll okay. find out in a second. I'm going to pick, and I think a lot of people expected this to come from mm. one or both of us. Uh-huh. I'm going to make it my number two. Okay. For fun. All right. Keep my number one a little bit of a secret. Mm-hmm. Make you guess. <laughs> Did you know that Kenneth Branagh made a movie out of Hamlet? <laughs> That's my number one. Yeah, yeah I kind of figured. <laughs> uh, I, I was torn, torn between Hamlet or a tie between Hamlet and Henry V. Uh, oh, I love but, Henry uh, V. Yeah, yeah um, I, Henry V came very, very close to my top ten. I just We already did a list of the best Shakespeare I, I, I movies. Say, the, the, I couldn't col- justify... Colloquially, it is Henry V. I know. Right. I, I, like, we, we have already done an iron list that was dedicated to just the best Shakespeare movies, and mm. we talked at length about both this version of Hamlet and Olivier's Henry V. And I couldn't justify putting them both on my top ten. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a little redundant, but, also, but I we, feel we like... we did a whole commentary track for Branagh's Hamlet. Also all, true. A four, four-hour commentary, so... We don't gonna, really need to say a lot we're anymore. Not gonna, we're not, we're gonna, if anyone's new, we're gonna we're gonna sell you on the movie a little bit. But if you really want to hear our thoughts on it, yeah, we did a four-hour commentary track for this in two parts. Cut off at the intermission because there's an actual intermission at this movie mm-hmm. uh, on our Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyAcclaimedNetwork. Uh, you can unlock the the podcast there. Um, Kenneth Branagh uh, is an actor who. Found their niche mm. directing Shakespeare movies. He directed a very handsome production as, of as Henry a filmmaker. As a filmmaker. In, in theater first. Yeah, but like, yeah. But like as a filmmaker. That's what I mean. As mm. a filmmaker, they did other things as well. They did a, they did a, like a British version of the Big Chill called Peter's Friends, which is very respectable, mm. and a few other things as well. But when we look back at Branagh's career, even though he won an Oscar for Belfast, we're going to look at his Shakespeare because he's because he did Henry V. Yep. He did Much Ado About Nothing, which is one of the better Shakespeare it's movies. It's so damn good. Uh, uh, he did Hamlet, which is one of the best. Yeah. Uh, he did uh, As You Like It, which mm. is pretty good. I actually haven't seen that one. Uh, he he did, did Love's Labor's Lost, which, which is, is an odd experiment and it not very successful, I, I but think, I do enjoy it. I think it failed. It was an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, and basically, it's like, hey, what if I did one of Shakespeare's flightier plays, but I did it as a musical. Like a 1940s I, American musical. And, I threw, and much like the way that 30s and 40s movie, uh, movies did. Uh, the musical numbers aren't going to be original to the film. Mm. They're going to be whatever Cole old, Porter old, track like, is uh, popular. Thirties standards. So like stuff. they'll just find a way to segue into heaven. I'm in heaven. Like it, and and you know what? When it works, cheek, it's very cheek cute. Cheek by Irving Berlin. Yeah. That one. But when, yeah. when it works, it's very cute. Mm. When it doesn't work, it's nails on chalkboard. Yeah. But uh, overall, I find that movie more fun than not fun. Okay. But regardless, uh, Hamlet isn't just Kenneth Branagh's masterpiece. I think it is the Shakespearean cinematic masterpiece. And it's not just because Branagh decided to do something no one had ever done before, and that is not edit the play. The, the entire text of yeah. the uh, original uh, folio, yeah. the first folio. Even Olivier's Hamlet from the 1940s, one best picture... Judiciously oh, carved stuff out of the play. Cut out of Famous Olivier's stuff version, gets cut yeah. out of that play. Like whole monologues that people know and do in like acting classes are, and people can quote if they've never even seen Hamlet, 
are not in that movie because Olivier wanted to be as cinematic as possible. Mm. Branna wanted to keep the entirety of the theatrical text, including scenes which even I can have to admit don't really need to be there. <laughs> and he managed, but when, hey, remember the wonderful character of Reynaldo? Oh, good old Reynaldo! Gerard <laughs> Depardieu gets to sit down for a few minutes and then leave the film. It says, "Yes, my lord," and that's his entire part. But it's played by Gerard Depardieu. This is—I think we've talked about this before. This is the most movie than a movie can movie. <laughs> like he was like, I'm going to take Hamlet, this like sort of epic encapsulation of all Western theater art, and I'm going to make so, it. Someone, the someone say the human consciousness. But some yeah, would argue that I think it's I think it's a bit of a stretch. So I went with just mm. Western theater tradition, but whatever. Mm. Uh, and he's going to make the ultimate motion picture out of it. Every scene has got to be the ultimate version of that scene. Mm. Every time there's a shift in tone the movie shifts in tone so that it goes from opulent costume drama splendor to terrifying horror movie to glorious swashbuckler to absurdist comedy well and i I think that's the beauty of brana's film is that he saw all of those things in hamlet and decided to make make that as cinematic as possible there is a in leaving in the entire text it was the first time I realized some like the rhythms of Hamlet. Yeah. Any stage staging you'll see of Hamlet, they're going to cut something out. It's just very long, and, and that's it's yeah, very it's, very long. It, it's a long yeah. play, yeah. and it's. I think it's going to be rare that anybody who puts on Hamlet is going to put in the whole text. Mm-hmm. Uh, less so uh, King Lear, which I think is even longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he left all of that in, and he left you know put it in an intermission, mm-hmm. all of that sort of. Uh, rhythm of the yeah. play and the way it sort of rotates through all of those genres mm-hmm. and takes us through this en- entire gamut of moods in a certain kind of an order. It flows organically now. Yeah, you, you realize yeah. sort of a the, the grandeur of Hamlet in a way that you wouldn't have by seeing a staged production mm-hmm. or, or even, even just, necessarily reading the, the text. Or even just watching an edited, like you could take Branagh's Hamlet mm-hmm. if you really wanted to and you could probably cut it down to two and a half hours, maybe even two. I mean, if and you get the plot, yeah. you'd get the plot, you'd get the big scenes, you'd get the gist of it. Mm. You wouldn't get the experience. Yeah. And this is a film that is designed to be writ large. It was shot on seventy millimeter. It's huge widescreen. The production design is gorgeous. The costume mm. design is gorgeous. They filmed it at a real castle. Yeah. It's the Duke of Marlborough's castle. Every single member of the cast is someone that you recognize. Mm. And it doesn't feel even like... Even the minor characters. Even the minor yeah. There's like once or twice where it feels like stunt casting. It feels like Robin Williams is just there to be Robin Williams. Well, when, when he, like, he somehow like sandwiched John Gilgood in there yeah. as Priam. Yeah. Remember the character of Priam who yeah. was in Hamlet? No, Priam isn't in Hamlet. No, he's not. But uh, John Gilgood plays him. Yeah. Uh, no, the the player king comes out and gives a speech about Prime and Prime's wife, uh-huh. and so the player king, by the way, is Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston plays the player king, so he uh-huh. gives this speech just about how, what a good actor he is. Yeah, and but there's a character and, uh, within the speech that also gets a character, and they're played by John John Gilgood and and uh, Prime's wife, who's played by Judy Dench. Yeah, so we get these two extra extra characters extra thrown in for titans, good measure. Titans of acting, just sort of yeah. sandwiched in. Yeah, it's just one of the most epically gigantic productions you. You've ever seen and i think if you find shakespeare uh, uh difficult to get into mm-hmm. uh even though this movie is incredibly long i do recommend this version yeah, uh, yeah you know people are like you know 
Baz Luhrmann tried to bring a maximalist version of Romeo and Juliet. He was doing the MTV version. He was doing the MTV thing. And you know, I actually like that movie. I know you don't. I, 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 I'm I do. I'm not hugely fond of it. I, I think... Yeah, the the biggest problems with Romeo plus Juliet uh-huh. are Romeo and Juliet. I think yeah. the two lead actors are kind of boring in that one. I, but. I'm not going to fight you too hard, and I don't want to get stuck in the weeds. My point is that's another maximalist version of Shakespeare in order to attempt to connect to modern audiences. Mm-hmm. And even though Kenneth Branagh's version it doesn't take place in the present day, it isn't overtly violent. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have like a Although really he, he kick-ass did, soundtrack. He does update the the setting. It's not yeah. set in uh, you know 1200 Denmark. No, no, no. He updates the it's, setting it's like, a bit. Yeah. But it's not like trying to be ultra contemporary is my point. Um, It ends up being just as huge and overwhelming. And if you think to yourself, the movies I want to see in a theater are the movies that feel like giant experiences, which Mm -hmm. a lot of people do. They only want to go if it's going to be like super transportive Mm -hmm. or exciting. Uh, I'll, I'll take the Pepsi challenge with Hamlet and like Avatar one anytime. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll anytime I, it's a bigger experience. So yeah, yeah Hamlet it's, rules. It, it's, I mean, it, it really is just one of the great pieces of cinema. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like it, I mean, Hamlet is a pretty, in terms of just English language theater is, you know, one of the, the biggest, uh, pieces of literature ever written. It's one mm-hmm. of the most celebrated, works of uh, in the western canon yeah uh even if you don't believe in the western canon it's just a great play and i feel like brano wanted to give it its due yeah uh like i said brano was raised in in the theater and he yeah. he had played hamlet in the past um he uh he cast Derek jacoby as claudius and he had i think first came to hamlet acting opposite Derek jacoby um I think when he was young, like he was mm. a teenager, and he, he saw Derek Jacobi playing Hamlet. And Derek uh-huh. Jacobi's just continued to play Hamlet. He might even... <laughs> he's still doing it somewhere. Why um, not? But uh, only it wasn't written by Shakespeare, if you ask Derek Jacobi. <laughs> yeah, Derek Jacobi. Derek Jacobi kind of kind of went off the deep end with the, the sort of Shakespeare uh, yeah. authorship you know, question. There's a lot of people uh, I know who I actually tend to like respect as artists who just genuinely don't believe Shakespeare wrote his own plays. Yeah. And I don't get it. I, I've heard look, the arguments. May, may, I don't look, think they're good arguments. Maybe he's, he's read something that we don't know about. But, maybe. I don't you know. know. But uh, because he was raised in and around Hamlet so much, it took on sort of a life of its own. He understood kind of how big it was in British theater and mm-hmm. world theater. Uh, so when it came time to make a movie, he's like, this can't be small. Yeah. This has to be as big as possible. And he made it feel as big as possible. Yeah. Um, without letting his particular theatrical style get in the way of the material. No. Um, and of course he cast himself as Hamlet. Of course, but you know what? He's actually good. I can't be mad. He's fine. I can't be mad. <laughs> he's totally fine. I can't be uh, mad. He's really good. As he's Hamlet. actually a very good actor as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and because he's such an energetic performer, he's sort of like throwing himself around and we get to know Hamlet and sort of yeah. not just the brooding figure, but you know, like the young buck, the college student yeah. figure also. The Lothario. A little bit of Lothario, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that in Brana's version, he said that uh, Hamlet and Ophelia were already romantically entangled yeah. prior to the events of the play. It really kind of helps that storyline a it lot. Really, it makes, it, it, really makes it a lot less mm. obtuse. Mm-hmm. Like her plight, her plight is a lot more visceral because of it. Yeah, yeah. it's a good. It was a really good decision. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that version of Hamlet is great, and that's only my number two. 
Uh, okay, well, what's your number one? Because I've said all mine. My number one, it's very different from Hamlet. It's a very, very different film. Uh, Hamlet is gigantic and sprawling. The My other film is maybe one of the best, most tightly constructed screenplays. Mm. And also, maybe, the, this might actually have a legitimate claim to the best comedy status. Hmm. Like, it's up there. Like you can, you know, there's other great comedies out there. You could argue something like an Ha is the greatest comedy ever made. You could argue Airplane is the greatest comedy ever made. And I wouldn't fight you on those. Those are perfectly valid arguments. But a movie I don't think gets enough credit for it, even though once you bring it up, anyone who sees it and says that movie is amazing. Uh-huh. And a movie that I'm, I'm very happy to help elevate or re-elevate to absolute contender for one of not only the best comedies, one of the best movies ever made is Hail the Conquering Hero. Okay, tell me about Hail the Conquering Hero. Have you seen Hail the Conquering Hero? Nope. Oh my god, Whitney! Okay, fine. <laughs> Hail the Conquering Hero is a film, I've mentioned his name before already in this podcast, this is a film written and directed by Preston Sturges. Uh-huh. Preston Sturges was one of the first filmmakers in Hollywood to graduate from screenwriter to director and write their own material. Billy Wilder would do this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he was that auteur uh, in a studio system that generally didn't allow for that. Uh, he made some of the best movies ever made. Uh, you might have seen Sullivan's Travels. You might have seen The Lady Eve, uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek. I have seen Sullivan's Travels. There I've you seen go. Lady Sullivan. Eve. So yeah, there yeah. you go. Um, Hill the Conquering Hero is just exquisitely constructed. It came out in 1944, and it's a war movie, but it's not a war movie. Stars Eddie Bracken as a small town boy uh, who leaves for the war. His father died heroically in World War One, and he's got a legacy to live up to. And he goes off to war and is promptly rejected because he has a hay fever. (laughs) He's got such a bad hay fever, they can't send him to the front. And he can't come home in shame. So he has spent years, like, working in, like, I don't know, like, like a factory somewhere and writing letters from the front to his home. And everyone's, like, really, really (laughs) proud of him. And he's deeply ashamed of this. And he can't keep the lie going much longer. The war's going to end. And he runs into a whole bunch of actual uh, uh, currently serving Marines uh, in a bar. And they all like him. And they all hear about his plight. And they say, that sucks. But you're a good guy. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to escort you home. We're going to say we were in the trenches with you. And that you were great. And we're going to support your story. And then you never have to talk about it again. (laughs) And he's like, okay, well, you guys all seem really nice and you're going to be with me on this journey. So, okay, fine. So he goes back home and uh, thinking he's going to just see his mom and the girl he left behind. And, uh, you know, she's engaged to someone else now. And it's all very, very, you know, oh, how unfortunate. Um, Not realizing that he is the biggest thing that ever happened to this town and everyone sees him as this great hero who has come back and there's like parades in the street and shit and everyone thinks he's going to start running for mayor against this really corrupt mayor who's now really terrified of him and the story keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger there's a certain kind of comedy that's based off of a lie I told a lie and now I have to keep that lie going yeah, the, the liar revealed is, yeah. is the, the screenwriting the problem with the liar revealed is that a lot of the time the lie sucks. Hmm. It's a self-serving, cruel lie. Something like uh, She's All That, for example. You know, 
oh, I'm going to like lie to her and say this isn't a wager. I'm going to say I'm actually in love with her in order to make her the most popular girl in school. Once that lie is revealed, fuck you. You're an asshole for doing that in the first place. Here... Well, the idea of those stories is it starts with a lie, but he ends up genuinely falling in love. Exactly, exactly. But by that point, I, I don't buy it anymore. Here, the lie depends is, on the chemistry of the leads. It really, does. It often depends on the chemistry of leads. That's true. But here, you're you're not mad at him. Hmm. It's getting bigger without him. He has no control over it anymore, uh-huh. and it becomes this thing. Basically, he becomes the story that they need to believe, whether or not it's true. And watching him getting incredibly frustrated, wanting to tell people how much he sucks and nobody believes him anymore <laughs> is genuinely funny in its construct. It's one of those Preston Sturges movies. It's got like every great character actor from the time in it. Uh, William Demarest is in it. Uh, fucking. Oh my God. Every fucking funny person is in this movie. <laughs> okay. Um, I just I defy you to watch this movie and tell me that this isn't the way to do this story. That this isn't incredibly tightly constructed. That well, the jokes don't fucking fire. Yeah. Like and they don't miss. It's just you're beautifully designed. You're describing it in terms of like plot. That that lie yeah. story is Lady for yeah. a Day. Yeah, uh, the Frank Capra movie. It's not dissimilar in some ways. Mm. It's not dissimilar, but th- that's so, the one. Somebody's coming, and I need to keep the lie going in some way. And Lady yeah. for a Day is wonderful because that's about a whole bunch of gangsters doing something good, and they're not used to it. Something nice for an old lady. Yeah, yeah this is one. It's actually because it's actually about like how like cool and heroic the Marines are, but it's not about them killing anybody. Yeah, that's something that's kind of cool about it. Like decent people, and yeah. Stuff like, like there's there's like a bit towards the end, or after these these marines, like basically let this guy have their glory mm. because he was a decent person, and he's just at the end of it, he's just like, wow, the marines really can't do anything, can't they? <laughs> it's like now he's like the fucking mayor, <laughs> like the entire world has changed just because these guys were nice. It is a movie that is based off of niceness. It is a movie that is based off of like being humane and sweet. Mm-hmm. It is a movie where the character's frustration is he's trying to be better and isn't allowed to because everyone thinks he's a saint and not just a flawed person. And he doesn't see that in himself. And he doesn't realize that even though this lie has gotten out of hand, he is a good person. Yeah. It's really hard to feel bad about yourself when you're watching Hail the Conquering Hero. <laughs> like, it's just a beautifully... Sweet, character-centered, sparkling dialogue, amazing plot. You could set your watch to it. <laughs> the concept alone is funny. Uh, it's just kind of perfect. It's a perfect comedy. And if you've never seen it, I hope you do. I hope this is this is going to light a fire under you and get you to watch Hail the Conquering Hero because it's just a delight. Yeah, it's... A- Golden Age of Hollywood, Hollywood in the 40s, yeah. has, has long been a big uh, sort of blind spot for me. And I, I feel like I've been catching up thanks to our other podcast, Only the Best. But, yeah. yeah. But there's, there's, this was nominated for uh, Best, um, I think, Best Original Screenplay. Okay. Uh, and Surges had already run one for a really great uh, political satire called The Great McGinty, uh, which is about a, um, uh, like a low level goon who, uh, in a corrupt political election, like, 
you know, like, oh, the, you know, that old joke, vote early, vote often. And they would, like, people who go into, like, different polling stations mm. is, like, pretend to be different people to vote more and more times with a really corrupt candidate and to get paid for it. Mm. He did it, like, 50 times. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and so that guy's like, well, I like this guy. And he becomes, like, his big crony. And then he sets up to be, like, he gets set up to be a patsy and, like, become a politician himself, mm. even though he doesn't know anything or care about anything and he's just going to be a puppet. But he's <laughs> fine with it. And it's only once he actually, like, gets into power and like falls in love with someone and he's like hey i just realized i have a lot of power maybe i could do something really nice and then his downward trajectory begins immediately <laughs> it's so embittered <laughs> it's so great it's, it's like it's like anti-capra it's glorious um but anyway, i love Preston surges to pieces he's made a lot of masterpieces and this is one of them uh maybe maybe even his best mm. uh so yeah that is our, right. uh, those are our picks for the best movies started with the letter H. Uh, for those who want to, just to hear them all in one place, here are the list. Here's what Whitney picked in order, although the order doesn't really matter. Oh, just in order of how, I, how we yeah. said them. Uh, the documentary Helvetica, about the font Helvetica. Uh, Head, uh, the monkeys movie. Uh, the musical Hell's a Poppin'. The Japanese surreal horror movie Haozu. Uh, the William Castle horror movie House on Haunted Hill. The horror sequel, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. The Hummingbird movie, House of Hummingbird. <laughs> it's not about hummingbirds. I know. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the French New Wave classic, Hiroshima Mon Amour. Uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's also very surreal western, The Holy Mountain. I guess it's kind of western. It's not really western, is it? No, it's, no, it's I'm, just, I'm, I'm just kidding. Not, not a western. Thinking of, thinking of El Topo. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a weird fucking film, mm. uh, and then his number one was Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Yeah, uh, my number ten was Brian De Palma's Hi Mom, uh, followed by the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night, followed by John Waters's Hairspray, uh, followed by Robert Wise's version of The Haunting, followed by John McNaughton's unbelievably bleak Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, uh, followed by uh, the nineteen nineties. Uh, historical microcosm hackers <laughs> followed by the followed by the Paul Newman uh, sports noir the hustler followed by uh, the Paul Newman uh, period farce the Hudsucker proxy followed by Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet followed by Preston Sturges's comedy Hail the Conquering Hero uh, Whitney are there any runners up you want to mention oh, before we golly, wrap it up so many yeah, um, this was a big one this time yeah uh, Holy Motors the Leos Carax movie I mentioned Henry V any version of Henry V I'm actually really. surprised Holy Motors didn't make your top 10 I, I, I do love Holy Motors I know you do but um, uh, Halloween John Carpenter's movie yeah uh, Half Nelson the film from 2006 oh, that was a really good one really good pick. Uh, Happy Go Lucky the Mike Lee movie <laughs> uh, Happiness the Todd Salons movie Oof. it's a rough rough That's rough a very watch. rough watch um, uh, Happy Death Day is yeah. is, is a really a really uh, that kind made of my runners hoot. up too I love that movie uh, Wong Kar Wai's uh, romance film Happy Together is a really good one about mm-hmm. two two criminals in love. Uh, we just did a commentary track for Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned The Haunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really wonderful pseudo-documentary film called Hoxon 
Oh, from, yeah. From uh, 1921-ish. Yeah, it's a uh, silent yeah. uh, film about uh, the history of witchcraft. Yeah. Which is Hush kind of a documentary and kind of just a horror movie, and yeah, it's Yeah, there's great. a lot yeah. of like horrific stagings and stuff. It's really, really spooky. Um, Heart and Souls is a film we've talked about in yeah. the past, the Rod Underwood film. Uh, a documentary film called Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Oh, yeah. About uh, just guys hanging out in a parking lot before the heavy metal concert talking about metal. Very good thing. Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures is quite good. Yeah, yeah, made my list. Uh, Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress is really good, mm-hmm. uh, as is his High and Low. Um, also made my list. Yeah. Uh, I'm fond of the musical Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hereditary, uh, the really? horror movie, is, is really tasty. Okay, uh, yeah, cool. I like. Her- I, I like didn't realize Ar- that it made that impact. Yeah, yeah I like Ariaster. Yeah. He's done three feature films, and I've, I've liked all three of them so far. Uh, her science fiction romance movie <sighs> yep. set in the near future. Uh, High Fidelity understands what it's like to go to a record store better than any other movie. I like the show better than I like the movie. Oh yeah, the short-lived show. I thought mm. that was I thought that was a better version of it. But that's yeah, good. I, I think they're both good actually. Yeah. Um, History of the World Part One. Yeah, in terms of funny uh, fu- movie. fun uh, comedy films. Yeah, uh, House of Games, the David Mamet film about con artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really really tasty one. Yeah, um, I love that film. The Honeymoon Killers. A wonderful to wonderful that lascivious that. like yeah. uh, neo noir. A uh, documentary film called Hoop Dreams yeah. uh, about uh, ba- the basketball's role in the lives of some uh, real-life young people. Mm-hmm. Um, from two years ago, there was a film called Host, which I think uh, yeah. better encapsulated what it was like to live under lockdowns than any other movie. Yeah. Uh, Ingmar Bergman made a really very strange horror movie called Hour of the Wolf, oh, yeah. but a man is slowly going insane. Um, how to get ahead in advertising is uh, a very strange picture with uh, mm. Richard E. Grant. You ever see that one? I haven't seen that. I always get that confused right. with how to succeed in business without really trying, which is a musical. Uh, I know it's very, yeah. very different, but in my head, I always no. How, get how to get ahead in advertising? It's about an advertising executive who kind of loses his mind and realizes that he has a boil on his neck. And it's actually another head, and it starts talking to him. And it has like a little face on. Oh, so it. it's how to get ahead in yeah, advertising. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's cute. Um, uh, what else did it put on here? Lost That's my place. Oh, uh, Howl's Moving Castle was on here. Oh, interesting. Uh, speaking of dumb movies that I'm just fond of, uh, yeah. I, I like Hudson Hawk. Uh, <laughs> Hudson Hawk is a lot. Yeah, uh, Hackers was on my list, as was Hairspray. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay, I'll try not to do too many repeats. Uh, High Noon, narrowly, it was like the last thing I cut from my top ten. It's a great movie, but we're also probably, we're also going to be talking about that on the next, uh, one of the next episodes of Only the Best on our Patreon page. That was a little redundant, but that's an amazing Western, one of the best. Uh, Hustlers. Oh, that's a great Jennifer movie. Lopez. Yeah, that's yeah. a great movie. I think in time, that's going to creep onto my top ten, but it hasn't done it yet. Okay. But it's an amazing movie, and it really deserved more more acclaim and more awards mm-hmm. than it got. Uh, Head was on my short list. Okay. John Carpenter's Halloween. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, the director's cut. <laughs> I actually <laughs> I've think seen the director's cut, but I think Halloween 2 is... is it's unbearable. I think it is more than bearable. I think it's actually kind of brilliant. Again, especially the director's cut. Um, the 2020 uh, filmed theatrical performance of Hamilton. Okay, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take it. There was some debate about whether that's a movie or a documentary, and mm. I don't give a shit. Uh, it's astounding, and I'm glad it was recorded with that cast for posterity. Yeah, It's truly wonderful. I'm glad it exists. Uh, Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. That's a good one too. An amazing mm. thriller. If you do not have let a single thing about it be spoiled for you, it's fantastic. Uh, Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. Mm-hmm. I think is a great compliment to the original. Uh, Michael Mann's Heat, 
awesome fucking movie. I have nothing to add to that conversation, but there you go. Uh, I am I am not yeah. high on heat. Uh, I am a, I am a huge fan of Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Whitney right. is not, but I not, love it. Not a fan of that one either. Yeah. Uh, Hellraiser 2 uh, uh, was on there as well. A really solid Men on a Mission uh, World War II movie called Hell is for Heroes. Uh, well, great, which I haven't seen. It's a great yeah. film. Uh, Heavenly Creatures. The Heiress. The Heiress is good, too. It's I, an amazing movie. It's, it's a movie that's it's quite pr- good. It's quite pretty good, good and then it, then it ends really yeah, well. Yeah, the ending is so good that even if you were just kind of enjoying it, by the end you're like, oh my god, this is so one of the, the great movies. It's Olivia de Havilland. Oh, it's so awesome. Uh, the David Mamet movie Heist. Okay, we both, then, both chose different <clears throat> David yeah. Mamet uh, House of Games is on there as well. I love right. House of Games as well. Uh, Help, the Beatles film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the... Uh, Olivier version of Henry V. Uh, truly wonderful uh, sort of fantasy rom-com. Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which was later remade by Warren Beatty as mm. Heaven Can Wait, but I think the original is even better. Uh, the, the, I've seen both. Yeah, the original is I, I haven't seen the one with uh, Kid Rock. I said Kid Rock. Oh, Chris, it, oh yeah. Chris Rock. Oh, yeah. Did, what uh, did, did what one called, called, it was called Down to Earth. Down and, to Earth, uh, that's right. I never and, saw that and one. it was a remake of the you know, same thing. The original, uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, one of the great movie screenplays. Study that screenplay. Yeah. Like that yeah. and Die Hard. You'll learn so much. Um, let's see here. The Hidden, 1987 with Kyle MacLachlan. <laughs> Fucking a, awesome movie. That's a kooky movie. movie, yeah. That movie kicks ass. Um, high and low. High Plains Drifter. Uh, Maybe may my favorite Clint Eastwood uh, western. Uh, awesome, weird, sort of genre-defying film noir comedy hybrid thing. Uh, His Kind of Woman, starring Robert Mitchum and Vincent Price. Uh, Vincent Price should have been nominated for an Oscar for it. It's delightful. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the original The Hitcher with Rucker Hauer. That original Hitcher is, like, fucked up. That is is (laughs) fucked up. It is mean. It's got one of the coolest car chases you'll ever fucking see. It's great. Uh, The original Rankin-Bass animated version of The Hobbit is... Oh, I should have put... How did I forget The Hobbit? I would have put that on my list. Okay, well, The Hobbit... I completely forgot about that. That's one of my favorite... The Childhood favorites. It is incredibly accurate to the book. It cuts out a couple of things. You wouldn't miss them. It is so much better than the live-action movies. Mm. It's so much better. It's so great. Um, I'm a, I am unapologetically fond of uh, the rom-com The Holiday. It is schmaltzy as hell, but it works. <laughs> All right. Uh, one of the most wonderful visual effects spectaculars ever, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, good effects. I remember it being kind of corny, but I saw it when I was maybe the wrong. Like it I was, works. I was already a teenager uh, yeah. when I saw it, so I think I uh, the not be- in a good spot. The best rom com about attack helicopters ever made. Home fries with Drew Barrymore and Luke Wilson. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very underappreciated film. Also hugely fond of Audrey Hepburn and uh, uh, Peter O'Toole and How to Steal a Million. Came very very close to my top ten. That's one of my favorite uh, sort of. Sort of sexy films. Uh, <laughs> let me just double check, make sure they had a few other things on here. No, 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 no. They're all these are all perfectly good movies. But host, host. Okay. Uh, the specifically the uh, the twenty twenty film. Twenty twenty film. I, th- I agree. I think it's going to age really well. Um, it's either going to age well, or it's going to become a very important document. Well, that's kind of what, what I mean. On. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I mean. Like I that, think that one in Bo Burnham Inside, I think, yeah. are, are going. Oh, that's a great double feature. Yeah, it would be sort of a, a good. Yeah. Uh, ideas to what was going on in our minds during lockdowns yeah anyway those are my picks uh uh thank you everybody for listening if you want to participate in the poll 
for the next Iron List, you can totally do so. You head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. By the time this episode is live, the poll should be up. We let it run for a few days. Uh, every single person who is a patron, even if you're at $1 a month, can vote in these polls. You don't necessarily get all of our exclusive shows, but you do get to vote in the polls and some other fun goodies. Here are the options for the next month of the Iron List. The best fairy tale movies ever. This could we, be a, we get to choose what that means. Yeah, we could, it could be a literal adaptation like Cinderella. It could be a, sort of a loose, modern sort of reimagining of it. There's a lot more than you might think. Uh, the best car movies, movies where a car or or other sort of vehicular transmode system is the center piece of the mm. whole thing. Uh, the best super villain movies. Everyone always talks about superhero movies, but what about movies where the the protagonist is a super villain, either in a comic book sense? Or perhaps stretching that a little bit. There's again, there's more than you might think, and it's a cool subgenre. Mm-hmm. People don't talk about it enough. Uh, and then lastly, stretching it a smidge. Usually, we do the best movies, the best original movie songs. And since we're not going to like play clips of all those songs, we will mm-hmm. have to sing them. So, just a fair warning. Sure. I mean, I will. <laughs> so I'll definitely be humming a lot. Okay. Uh, so, in any case, uh, those are the options. Those are the things you can vote for over at Critically Acclaimed, uh, the Patreon page. And, of course, mm-hmm. uh, we would love to hear the movies that you would have put on this list, the movies that you think we missed and should have put on there. Uh, always a treat every time we do an Iron List. You can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us an actual physical letter to uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep, and uh, we might read your email <clears throat> or letter on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We're also on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at mm. William Bibiani. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter until it... Until it explodes. Until it completely collapses. I've, I've, I've moved... I, I've got accounts on Spoutable and Substack Notes. Yeah. I'm just... I'm laying the foundation. So if you're there, I'm always at William yeah, I, was, I, I was at Hive, but I've realized that... Um, Getting like a lot more junk mail and other you know yeah. bad actors kind of showing up on my, my social media since yeah. I signed up for Hive. Security wasn't good over there. No, I'm, I'm seeing the result of that. Yeah. Um, but I am at Whitney Seibel on Twitter until the entire thing burns to the ground. Yeah. Good times. Um, and I think that's about it. So that's thank you, everybody, it. for listening. A huge shout-out to our patrons for picking this topic and for supporting us throughout uh, all good times and bad. And uh, that's the list. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.